Welcome to the Crash Course Podcast. I like every week and Matt. I'm John. I like every week. I'm Steve. I'm sorry. I just got to bust you for something. It's just not a podcast without that. Yeah. That and the fact that you keep forgetting who you are. This is, I think, two weeks in a row That's now. true. That would that, well, would, we, that we could all, be a possible reason. We often say Steve has the soul of a hundred-year-old man because he's always crotchety and cranky, so Alzheimer's comes along with it, I guess. That's fair. I mean, I guess I'm taking it pretty well. <laughs> yeah, all things considered. All things considered. <laughs> Though in the middle of the podcast, you go, who, what, where am I? What's going on? Who I are you Remember people? the war. Wait, that didn't happen, did it? I don't know. Oh, God. Um, Starts having flashbacks. Before we get into this week's fan-requested album, I would like to uh, promote a pretty awesome thing. Um, as of us recording this, I will be featured, I found out I will be featured on this month's epic podcast with Chuck Stunning. Schaefer the Dark Lord and Nelson Lugo. They invited me to come on and chat on their podcast about nerdy things, and I'm guessing music. It's a hunch. Um, Perhaps. I actually already have been talking to Charles Stunning. She's been, we've been gushing over the new singles from the new Decemberist album because I've been listening to them because I have no self control no and I'm really excited. Spoilers. I almost, I almost read a Pitchfork review, but then I stopped. Don't you dare. Don't you dare. But um, we've been geeking out about that, so we've decided that the two of us are just going to overtake the entire Epic Podcast talking about the Decemberists until both Nelson and uh, Schaefer kill each other. I, and su- then it's I ours. support that coup. I thought you would. Yeah. I thought you might. So that should be out. I'll the, be rooting. That'll be out the final Thursday of this month, so definitely go check that out. Um, I'm excited to be on that show. I've been listening since it started, so it'll be cool to chat nerdy things and music with those folks. And you've never been on that show before. Correct. Have okay. I have not. This is my first appearance. Uh, first of many, we can only hope. Oh, the optimism is just cute. And slightly singeing. Not all of us can be um, aggravatingly dark like you. Hey, you know what? I'm smiling, aren't I? Yeah. They can't see it. They can't you know, see I, it. I hope they sure. can infer it. Um... I guess from here we'll jump right into this week's album review. Um, it is a fan recommendation by Mark H. We read his email two, two episodes ago, ago. Two yeah. weeks ago. And um, he recommended an album I heard a lot about last year. came out, I think, December, definitely towards the end of last year. And it's the album Black Messiah by D'Angelo. D'Angelo is well known for being a very... Um, prolific R&B guest, guest guy, I guess is the way to put it, because he hasn't made an album in 14 years. His last album was uh, 2000. That was one of the segues with which uh, Mark came to us for, because for that first episode of the year, we did Aphex Twins Zero, which was also another album released after 13 years or so, and that was a segue. It's like, all right, well, if you're checking into people who are re-emerging onto the market, then why not check out these guys? Also, one of I mean, one of the most famous things that D'Angelo is known for, at least pop culture-wise, is for his song Untitled from, I think it was that record that came out in 2000, the music video was him, muscles and all, no clothes, from the pelvic up, so you could just barely not see his whole manhood, essentially. And it was just him standing there singing passionately. Actually... (laughs) The record uh, that came out in 2000, Voodoo, that was one of the things that caused him a little bit of uh, uh, problems. When he hit that limelight, because being uh, he was raised very strict pen, uh, Pentecostal mm. uh, with a preacher for a father, he kind of 
fell into becoming a sex symbol. And that actually gave him a little bit of a grief. He didn't want to be that right. kind of uh, an individual. It, it was something he kind of shied away from. But he had years from 2002 modern of just problems. Alcoholism hit him very early in the 2000s. Uh, he lost a friend of, of his that was a very close companion. There was a lot going on for him. He, he lost funding for a solo album during that time. This album, Black Messiah, was not scheduled to be released until this year, later this year. He actually rushed it. Uh, not for any, any, any reason that he needed the album out. He just was uh, releasing it so quickly because of the impact of what's going on with the police recently. Yeah. He felt like this album needed to come out when he released it. it. It was something of a rush job, but at the same time, he was pretty much done with the product to begin with. So it's it's got a little bit of an interesting idea uh, of he's writing this from a, a kind of a tormented area of his life and finally got his life back on track to trying to make it a response to what's going on in the news right now. Bridging it with current events. Yes. Which makes perfect sense because there's so much chaos in the media right now and this the idea of this album trying to be a guiding light or to help those since he also had struggles i mean it's not a terrible idea and it's definitely there are definitely themes in this record that could relate to those events in the media for sure especially then and by then i mean a month ago <laughs> yeah it's not <laughs> yeah, even now that it, long now ago. it seems like it's it's kind of winding down a little bit but uh yeah that, i mean they're pretty pretty hectic there yeah. Um, I mean, it's never going to be completely out of the news, and it's always coming back and forth, but let's get back to focusing on the record, which again is called Black Messiah. The first track is called Ain't That Easy. And from the moment the record starts, we get a very strong sense of what I believe D'Angelo's sound is, because again, I'm only sort of familiar with it. But this beautiful, groovy, almost classic-sounding R&B that's engaging immediately from the moment it starts. It, the song actually starts off with sort of an oscillation going on in the background of noises that slowly focuses in into a, a bass, guitar, and hand-slapping, snapping riff that, that is both nostalgic but still modern day. It has, it has a, a little bit of both going on here, and it's a great way to present yourself as an introduction. I really enjoyed how it focused the album and this song right away. I think as opposed to an oscillation, I would describe it more as a whirring or a warbling sound. And that's just for those few, first few seconds. And then all of a sudden that breaks and it comes in really, really strong with that funk riff. And I was I was told to expect funk on this album again by Mark. Uh, it, it's extremely crisp, very, very close bass. Uh, nothing like, like anything I've ever heard before. Um, I mean, I, I say very often about how like the bass bass work back in the '70s was was uh, often mixed differently by uh, having sort of a direct input as opposed to like being mic'd uh, or you know mic up to an amplifier or perhaps doing a combination of the two, which is a little bit more common now. Um, but back then, everything everything was direct. That way, you get the cleanest bass sound possible, and it seems like this is borrowing from the same. Uh, from the same deal here, but yet it's punchier because using uh, modern filters, of course, you can you can really fill out that sound even more so than it ever could be filled out back in the 70s. Which isn't to imply that that what we're getting here is like straight up from the 70s, but that's the interesting little split you're dealing with. This guy again should be mentioned that he was doing most of his work back there in the 90s, 
just as we mentioned with Apex Twin, well, there's been somewhat of an absence from the community in the 2000s. And in this case, I think it works to the advantage by bringing back something that I don't really find very much anymore. I mean, y you think of Soul, and it's kind of... It, it's obviously developed, it's been merged into R&B in many cases, and sometimes that be, that's been merged directly into hip-hop, and I feel like you don't get a lot of the pure R&B and soul that you got back between the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, so much so that you even detect an earlier predecessor of that genre, and that is gospel. Yeah. You could take that in the vocal work very, very strongly in this track here. But oh. the, fu it, the interesting thing about that, though, is that when it steps in, it's not the kind of straight-up uh, synchronized gospel work that you might expect in church. Instead, everything is very disparate. Like, various groups of vocals step in at different times. And it also doesn't seem like it has the same the same energy. It's a very low-energy track, all things considered. Granted, it's got the punch, but it's not... It's it's not, you know, it's not on a spree necessarily. There's this very smooth, like, in the bar, just chilling and relaxing, having a beer by your side while something vaguely entertaining goes on stage. Nothing that you're perturbed by. At the same time, nothing you're invested by quite yet. I still think it would intrigue you more so than just, like, rouse you to dance. It's It's a soundtrack of sorts. And this further is uh, this idea is further exemplified in the uh, in the way that the instruments seem to step in and step out. It's like every once in a while, an artist is getting up on stage to take place of a different instrumentalist. It's amazing layering for what they're doing because everything is is becoming more punctuated as the song goes along, especially that guitar. I love the way the guitar is just light little ditties on top of everything. Light little ditties over a very, very regular bass pattern, for instance, um, and, and drum pattern here. For instance, you get a lot of accents just on, like, every single beat. You know, a lot of, like, oompa kind of work. You know, it's pretty regular. It's in 4-4, but you get the emphasis on every single beat, and then it retracts. So 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and that kind of... Uh, that kind of um, accent work, and it it, it, it it comes through as being a little bit hypnotic. You're intrigued by all those other background effects, like, for instance, the things that John mentioned, like the guitar in the background, like the vocals, which don't seem like it's spotlighted necessarily, but just sort of crooning along, almost as if it was separate, almost like if it was any looser, it would be like spoken word practically, and yet it's still very much, uh, they're very much in tune with, with, with every pitch, with every... Uh, with every aspect of the melody. It's just, it's a looser structure. What I really enjoy about the vocals is that from the minute, more or less the minute the song starts and vocals start to come in, D'Angelo really gives you a sense of his range, his skill, and his talent. He's not just staying low or high. He's not just staying slow or fast. He's kind of moving all over the place, flexing those vocal muscles to kind of give you a variety of everything that's to come. But if I'm not mistaken, it's also a mix of other singers as well. Yes. So you do have the lead there, but it's because of all that give and take back and forth, overlaying and then retreating, um, that in many cases I, I wasn't so much focused on the single melodic line that is the lead here. So when you look at some of these lyrics, a lot of times they don't really shine through just on a listen. Again, this could come off as kind of passive if it wasn't for the melodic, or perhaps very much, uh, um, if it wasn't for the hypnotic, excuse me, but at the same time, that very well could be it. That very well could be the reason why you can't engage is because the hypnosis is taking you in a different place. It's putting you more in that oompa fashion than it's putting you, let's say, on the 
uh, <laughs> on the astute verses here. Take a toke of, of smoke from me as you dream inside. Let your days slip away. Come with me and ride, my darling. You aren't the average kind. You need the comfort of my lovin' to bring out the best in you. I hope that you do. See what you've given to me. Separatin', debatin', stay with me. That's all you gotta do. That sweet message, don't think it's gonna come through to you on the first listen. I think you're just gonna detect vocals, period. And those vocals themselves are almost zombie-like the way they they just glide along without that, that high energy that, that, that highlights these words. Yeah, but I think also the lyrics here are something that you can discover, and the music itself still is enough to engage you without them, even with the vocals just being another instrument. And after a while, I, I wasn't even focusing on the hypnotism. The hypnotism of the bass line more than anything else set up that that devious guitar that light little inflection piece guitar to to be a focus point you can't quite detect it all the way through it's uh, hard to hear but it's so worth the focus of trying to pick it out of trying to hear the notes it's playing the little tap 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 that it has on top of everything else that light and playfulness keeps the song from becoming very brooding it keeps it oh sure it keeps it enjoyable and still airy enough that while it's deep and it has maybe some dark undertones, it's it's still approachable. Sure, and and certainly when I say um, so when I say hypnosis, I don't imply that it that it is related with anything particularly dark or brooding itself. Uh, being hypnotized, just simply being hypnotized and entranced by something, regardless of the way it makes you feel necessarily. Um, but the funny thing is, just it, it's. It's I can't get my my head around that that those vocals. I feel like that's the that's going to be a, a challenge for most listeners coming in here is is after a while you may start to view them as fairly meandering and that's about the only uh mark that I would probably give off this opening track just as a um just as an introduction into into what he he's doing because if if, if you're a melodic guy, well this is going to probably favor the, the improvisatory guy more than just the straight-up melody because it seems like these things weren't weren't set to begin with. I don't gather that every single note here, for instance, was written down and then played verbatim. I think a lot of it was go with the flow on the spot in studio. Well, I think it's more of a spiritual and emotional experience to kind of see where the moment takes you, and you get a sure. sense of that from the track. And I think it is a bit of a shame that you don't get... Th- how beautiful the words are just by listening. You do have to kind of dig for it, but I don't want to hurt it too much for that because all in all, it's still an enjoyable song that I think is a strong introduction to what we get from the rest of the record. Sure, and it's obviously it's only a, a dose of the hypnosis that we're about to get because we get it full force starting with track two, 1,000 Deaths. Now, it, it should be mentioned before we, we get into the music here that the, the first thing you're going to be drawn by is not the backbeat that um, perhaps becomes more prominent later but at the beginning what you're really focusing on is the first words that are actually very audible and that is a, a what sounds like it is taken from a sound bite of some sort of uh some sort of bygone speech or something like that but i, I have a feeling this may very well have, have um this may be a fiction that that's that's placed here by d'angelo himself and it's a kind of preaching you immediately hear uh the line Jesus, when I say Jesus, I'm not talking about some blonde-haired, blue-eyed, pale-skinned complexion cracker Christ. I'm talking about hair like lamb's wool. Obviously making reference to the constant uh, uh, reference of, of, of 
Jesus as as a, a white guy, which is pretty much impossible, genetically speaking. It's pretty widely accepted now that he was black, or at the very least, Aramaic. So I thought I'd just throw that out there on this Martin Luther King Day, which is the day we happen to be recording. <laughs> um, it's an interesting idea that this preacher soundbite sets up on top of the way the drums are integrated and the bass slowly, the touches start going in with the basses. It sets up an emotion here that I think speaks to the title fairly accurately, 1,000 Deaths. It's it's significantly more ominous than the previous track. It's significantly more... It, it's got more darkness to it. Well, also but that he, darkness is really conveyed by yeah. the rumbling onslaught of drums that you get and bass from the very beginning, more or less. Well, see, onslaught is not the word that I would use to describe it. Again, I... I, I the segue is hypnosis here, and this is what I think is, is capturing that far more than I got in the first track. Um, and yes, it is specifically for the drums, but it's not that the drums are doing anything, you know, anything attacking you necessarily. They're just chugging along right. with extreme, almost, uh, almost, almost perturbing regularity. And it's not darkness. Darkness was the wrong word to use. It's a, a seriousness the first track didn't have. It is a concrete belief that the first track I believe just frankly d doesn't come near this this is much more salt of the earth in its sound salt and style it's a, it's a it's an urgency the music is essentially a perpetual backbeat here uh it's so much to the point that it's it's I mean it's, music implies almost that there would be more going on here this is just chugging along like machinery, like a locomotive. It, it seems to be formed by a light, a very, very light uh, bass synth in the background, like in the far distance. That's what comes in first. And then over that, you get the hi-hat and the snare. And that's all we're talking about in the way of drums, literally just that. And between those components, you get this very regular, very monotonous uh, structure that perpetuates the entire time. Now, if we're going to talk quarterly, we only get little differences here because of course you do have that bass synth in the background I, at least i believe it's a synth it may very well just be the bass that's uh um that's configured to sound much warmer to the point that it sounds more electronic but you get some rocking back and forth between like g sharp and c sharp eh, back and forth in that department because it's sort of if the only thing you can talk about is literally just that one note created by the bass so it's hard to say that this is some kind of like structure like oh yeah we're moving from one to four here but yet you do kind of get that effect but at the same time the urgency is ramping it up because every single time you get this backbeat and it seems to even become more intense as the track goes it sounds like it's purposely trying to peak the microphone or peak the input on, on, on headphones, the, you're almost concerned that your equalizer setting is off or something like that, but that's the way it was mixed, it's the way you were meant to hear it, and I think it fulfills this urgency incredibly well. Also, once we get past the beginning of the song and we go from the verse to the chorus, the transition is one of the first of many impeccable transitions on the record. What I really like about it is that it's almost without warning. It's just, it's so smooth you can't almost even place it. Which I enjoy a transition that doesn't even feel like a transition. That truly True. feels natural. Yeah. And, but it, but it comes with a little bit of foreshadowing. Because, let's say about, mm, about the 1 minute 30 marker. This is where the verse actually begins. And it's before that trans transition actually goes into full force. Instead, 
the verse begins and there is no transition from, let's say, the intro that I described into the verse. The verse is literally just that. It's sort of back and forth between G sharp, C sharp. Um, but you get this light murmuring in the background. Again, very indistinct. And this time, much more indistinct than we described uh, in, in track one. This is... This is like talking through uh, several different filters. There was an obvious attempt to 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 cloud this, and perhaps the the lyrics uh, support that. You consider, I can't believe, I can't get over my fear. They're gonna send me over the hill. Ah, the moment of truth is near. They're gonna send me over the hill. I can't believe I'm so caught up in the thrill. Ain't nothing, and nothing's gonna change my will. Locked and loaded up. I know the drill. Say no what I'm say no what I'm saying. They're gonna send me over the hill. I've been a witness to this game for ages, and if I stare death in the face, no time to waste. But oh. And over the course of this, which again is almost completely inaudible, you just get the sense that murmuring is going on, what you do get is these slight little moments of of swells. They kind of sound like strings in the background, and there's just these 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 little moments, and this is the foreshadowing that I that I was talking about before. It seems kind of like strings swelling and filling out like the full G sharp minor as opposed to let's say just the bare G sharp note that we had um before and the the bass seems to be again hammering out like G sharp the whole time but without context it could just be like a ping so you don't start putting the pieces together until you feel this full chord that is very fleeting it comes in then it's gone but then it comes back let's say around the two minute ten marker and we get some other little tonal things going on here and then we get that move back up to uh to, to C sharp and then finally around uh around two two minutes thirty that's when we get our, our our B section or our chorus which is the smooth almost effortless transition which is it it's it's so strange when you consider the fact that almost anything from this monotony would seem like it would shock you. And somehow they managed to evade that. That is, through that slow introduction, the idea of how concrete what he's, he's conveying here. How serious the idea he's conveying here. It doesn't shock you because it's not an outlandish idea, I want to say. It is... A more natural progression, I want. I well, want to say between where A we, and B. Where we, eh, I don't know, about between A and B, where we land is more natural. Like by the time I get there, it's the kind of thing that if 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 B had let's say been the beginning of the song, then I'd be like, all right, this is recognizable. This is something I kind of know from my knowledge of R and B. Um, but the transition, I've never heard of before at all. I, I I think it's 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 bizarre to take us kind of from nothing into something. Not that I disc- like, like I'm just completely dismissing uh, the verse, but it's like taking you from a netherworld into something that's tangible. Yeah, it's adding more substance to the song. That was, and there was plenty of substance, substance to begin with, but it's adding another level. The substance is, is indefined, you know. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you know there's something there, but you're 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 waiting to see what the track is going to uh, to unfurl. But the problem is the the extreme distortion of the vocals really keeps that substance hidden throughout the song because I do enjoy the words that are said. It's just so hard to hear those verses that I, it, so much content, it was really lost for me. I understand the general idea and we kind of went into it uh, last week in the same sort of way. I want to know what he's saying. But do you mean the chorus or the, or the verse? The verse. The verse. Okay. The so verse. Because the chorus is yeah, the choruses were quite regular. In that case, we get we get lyrics. You can quite pick up, uh, and that goes. Um, and if I charge it to the game before, every time I slip into the unknown, well, 
that's only when the spot gets blown. It's war. That is the law. I won't nut up when we when we up thicken the crunch, because a coward dies a thousand times, but a soldier only dies once. That's pretty beautiful, and it's a poetry that at least you can you can you can uh, you can digest on the spot um, and get the full on. Uh, the full-on effect, but then it does retreat because, of course, we do slip right back into the verse, which is almost like the track has just has just slipped into unconscious again. And it's that unconscious part where I, I it loses some of the it's very religious, and especially in that second verse, the religious ideals that he's putting across here, which I think would have been very impactful had you been able to more easily understand them. The idea of praying to a god and, and looking to God to save you, to give you the bravery, to charge up that hill, to go over that hill that he's talking about, to be the soldier and to be brave, I think loses a little bit of its of its strength. There is so much strength in this song, but the personal message is kind of lost in the clutter. No, I agree. Although I do find, and I, this is just a, a separate point to add on the, on, on the track as a whole, that I think the... the the arc, the musical arc of this track is rather brilliant because of the way it takes uh, it takes sort of a simple chord progression and stretches it out to the point where you don't even realize that, that one of the most common chord progressions in, in, in music is actually taking place, and that is that G-sharp, C-sharp, and then finally when we land uh, in the chorus, it goes back to F-sharp. So what we have here is a classic 2-5-1 progression, but it happens so gradually and so slowly with so few elements involved in this in the switch that only only subconsciously do you accept this uh this transition i think that explains what um what uh why we 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 take it so so naturally why we we found that transition to be so so effortless because of of what he's doing on the fundamental music level it's a it's a very oppressive track a very concrete track. And I don't mean oppressive in a bad way. This is a very good way. It's a very solid idea that by being stretched out so far almost comes across as manic for me. Almost comes across as a as a slow burn into madness. The way, especially the way the vocals drop out and kind of get distorted again, which we'll give it to the to its credit. It's it's well, it's that kind of frantic nature to it while it's still very Slow. We're not talking about a very quick tempo here. It's 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 not 150 beats per second uh, per minute. It's it's a nice, easy listening kind of an idea, but it comes across as full of energy yet solid. It's it's a, it's a hard thing to describe. Well, it's I mean again, it's manic in those instances, and it's like if you took that chord progression and you just like played it bare on the piano, two five one, but you just played the two five, and all you did was just 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 leave you hanging. There would be this this compulsion to go to one and you realize that the duration of these of these of these uh bizarre verses and that 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 pulsating beat you're just waiting the entire time it's waiting for that release and it only gives you that uh uh that twice in the entire track you get once in the middle and you get once uh sort of toward the end um it's a it's a really really bizarre track but again as far as musical art goes i think from a high-minded concept this is this is very brilliant and of course the we didn't even mention the thing about all of the the internal work going on which is more like more like color for instance the little slap bass uh um just just rhythmic variances that you would include in here slap bass is, is fluid throughout this whole entire track in fact um i think it actually is the is the fundamental core but it's also it's also providing the color along with little spurts of funk guitar little spurts of 
anything you want and then along for the ride. The outro takes those rhythms and those those accents and kind of cr- tightens them up a bit, crisps them up a bit, mm-hmm. brings them to the focus to wrap up the track, which is a nice way to close up this thing that might have almost gotten repetitive had it not gave way to that in the outro. And it's a really great way to lead into the third track, the charade, and which that or the charade, say, if you will. I want to say that transition, I that idea of the outro really starting to crisp it up is very evident in what we get introduced in the charade. Well, I have a little rant about the intro to charade, <laughs> and if I did uh, this opening synth that you get here takes me to another region of that sort of 90s era R&B soul that I was describing earlier on. And this is this one is far more sensual, almost just dripping with pure sexuality itself. It breaks out with again that kind of muted warble sound, but this time it's 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 crisper and it's got it's got that that waning, that pitch bend waning that was common for the time. And it it comes across like like sweat. It was honestly the most sensual 90s 90s sound that I've I've heard and that I also haven't heard in years it reminded me of a very interesting thing it reminded me of a moment in a movie that a friend of mine revealed to me because he was fascinated by the specific bass part uh and the movie itself was called With Honors I don't know if anybody remembers that but it had uh Brendan Fraser and Joe Pesci where Joe Pesci played a homeless guy and uh who, who was living at Harvard, and Brendan Fraser was a student at Harvard who loses his term paper because it falls down the grate into the basement of the library at Harvard where Joe Pesci was living. And then he decides to withhold the paper and give him only sheets of it at a time in exchange for things, simple things, food, a sandwich, a shower. And at the moment that this starts sort of getting a little bit more intense in this movie, um, the moment where they finally make this deal... There is this section that uses almost the same musical concept, and it, it's a very ineffable motion, but here it, it's, it's, it's used as sort of a bass that's muffled there, same kind of tone, which is some light sort of synthy piano in the background. But it's an, I find it to be an ineffable emotion because I feel like it's the most raw, caught up in the moment, giving into your urges kind of sound ever, but simultaneously, it's also really, really bleak, and it carries this, this sad existential tone for it. So take, for example, in speaking to that split, you have the movie, which uses it just at that moment where, where Brendan Fraser is begrudgingly helping out this homeless person and, and inviting him onto the main floor of the Harvard Library while he gets a little bit of work done based on this one, on this one paper. And there's this kind of innate sweetness to the gesture, but also a what-am-I-getting-myself-into kind of feeling about it. Then, then you go back to the song here. Take, for example, the, the backbeat here. It just feels like like pings off a steel yard. So how bleak is that? When you combine that with the fact that with the regularity of it, you could almost hear it a different way, and that is this sort of sort of heavy breathing, like a like this sensual heaving in the background. So I know that's a long way to go for like the, the fifteen to twenty seconds here, but I thought it was the most it was probably the most evocative musical moment I've heard in a very, very long time, coming from the beginning of this track. From which we go into a very classy intro and this is another one of those expert transitions you can't pin exactly where the beat will fall as it heads into this first verse uh but it just it glides in there and finally when it does you know where the first beat is when you hear it and you get this 
sine wave of crescendo, again the pulsation of, of the rhythm when you finally enter the verses. And here it's mostly on, on the second and, and fourth beat. But in, in, in the midst, you're left with these, with these eighth notes that are softer when they're farther away from the second and fourth beat and stronger and heavier when they finally fall on the second and fourth beat. That transition was, was absolutely phenomenal, and I don't, I don't hear it every day. We have two songs back-to-back with two fantastic transitions, but what I love also about that transition in this song is it gives way to this celestial almost sound, and it, it lends to this idea of pure passion that you're talking about, or this this sexual heat. That's another way I would hear it. Celestial like, is a good way to put it. Just this otherworldly experience, which let's you know, let's be frank. If we're talking about a sexual experience, I mean, you can feel otherworldly from those experiences, and the fact that it's kind of giving that impression without explicitly saying it's sexual, it's giving hints of it, and it's also giving hints of these other vast emotional swells as well. Of course, a 90s R&B liked to like to focus on that and really explore that whereas other areas of music might, you know, focus they might pass it by tangentially. An R&B track, a good soul or R&B track is going to immerse you in that moment and potentially potentially make it a soundtrack for actually using it in said purposes. But it doesn't go full force for me. It stays more towards just pure passion, just pure idea of real welling up of emotion. It, sure. It's not 100% sexual, but it's also, because it's got twangs of other pieces in here. It's not carefree or anything like that. It's still serious. It still has a very concrete idea of what it's doing well, and where it's going. That's one of the main reasons I, I love it. Obviously, I wouldn't have gone into the anecdote, you know, which obviously pertains to a very bizarre scene in a movie that could very well be forgotten at this point. But, you know, it can it, it can be applied to several different things, but you have to think abstractly when you hear it. You can't just flat out say, oh yeah, I'm going to stick that on my next, like, songs to make love to kind of soundtrack. No, that's... That's not that's not how simplistic I would take this. It has many uses, and I, I it's actually been a shame that I haven't heard it in this many years, which is why, again, it's intriguing to have it being brought back to life from a musician who was perhaps doing this at the time. Again, I don't know his discography, but I would theorize. And the way it's being used here is to convey a very political idea in the in the lyrics, a very call to arms kind of an idea of what's going on in the world and this is why this is where he starts delving into why he released this album so soon just from the first verse and i love the inflection that he puts in these words crawling through a systematic maze and it pains to demise pain in our eyes strain of drowning wading into your lies degradation so loud that you can't hear the sound of our cries all the dreamers have gone to the side of the road where we lay on, inundated by media, virtual mind fucks in the dreams. And what what's interesting? Poetry, oh, poetry, poetry coming out of his mouth right here. I love it. But what's interesting is he's taking one form of passion and converting it into another. The idea of this passionate sounding music converted into a more aggressive passion about the wrong in the media and where the world is. I mean, even the outro, the lyrics in that, revealing at the end of the day, the charade, all we wanted was a chance to talk. Instead, we're only, we only got outlined in chalk. That's so bleak and so focused. It's like he's using this, this, this sweet rhythm and this 
beautiful moment to open your eyes. And I think that construction of the song is really fascinating. It's funny that actually I brought up uh, an anecdote of a case where it was, uh, of course, the the downtrodden, you know, sort of looking for a way to make it. And it was almost it was the same kind of context, if not perhaps as on point. Of course, now we know that in this instance, uh, this is a track that speaks directly to the purposes that John mentioned when we started the whole review, which is, of course, the stuff going on as of as of present day uh, with with the police. And if there's an implication here, well, that uh, if things don't um, if things don't line up correctly, if the media doesn't sort of get their act together and awareness and all these other things, then this is going to become a recurring uh, a recurring trait. And this depends on, I, as far as I, I, I take this, it's, it's more of like, it, it, it's not a matter of really what side you're on. I'm, I kind of look at this directly with the inundation by the media, which I think is something that most people are fairly concerned about because of the fact that you realize everyone has an agenda in our time. And it's, I, I think that's one of the things that I personally found most frustrating, um, more so than either side uh, back during, during all the madness, you know, at the end of the year. Uh, it's just the media is always trying to pitch something to you. And the, the, the more and more they pitch it, the more accelerated it becomes because then other bits of media will pick up on what they picked on and they'll just sort of ramp up the, the rhetoric. And I think that's what I find most, uh, most irritating. And that's really why this stuff will continuously go down is because everyone will continuously get angrier and angrier and angrier. And then in a world like that, stuff's going to happen. Well, because it's also, this this track is laying out, it's not about right or wrong or what side, it's about there needs to be change, period. Something right, has but to there, happen. Right, but there is a focus line right. out here, and I believe it was the, the, the inundation of the media line. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's a call to truth. It's a, a, just a transparency in not just reporting, but in just partaking of knowledge. It's, yeah, in everything. Stop, stop being a pedal pusher, uh, a peddler of lies. Yeah. Stop being the one just doing the soundbite and throwing things out of proportion. Put it together in a cohesive way where you actually are telling people facts, where you're telling people what's going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, and that's, that's, that's the thing. But we could go on a tangent about this for the rest of the show. But the, the thing sure. that, well, the, well it's, it's already succeeded simply in by getting a discussion going. Right, and the thing, I, like I said, the thing I ultimately said is that he takes one form of an emotional connection and passion and passion and pushes that passionate discussion towards something else it's a brilliantly clever use of music it's a brilliantly clever use of lyrics and i think it really comes together really well which further perpetuates that idea that you were saying in track two it continues in track three and i think it even further connects although maybe going in a different direction in the next track as well sure and that the funny thing is that we you know we're all like hung up on message here the, the, it the, this this track uh, track three that is is filled out by by um, probably some of the funkiest bass yet yeah and and it's another element that I think starts here and it will persist throughout uh, throughout some of the coming tracks and it's the fact that I feel like many times the bass has a mind of its own I feel like it's on its own perpetual melody feeling like it would almost just keep going while the rest of the track, the rest of the elements, the rest of the instruments just fell out or whatever. They could drop away like flies. It wouldn't matter. The bass would just be in a zone. Like, I see the bass as the character, the character here. It's lost in a world of its own. Um, and, and that seems to be one of, one of the only constants here uh, amidst, amidst the, I mean, amidst the funk itself, which otherwise is, is engaging enough. But for instance, for sure, this track is, is, giving, you, uh, is giving you it from multiple angles. 
um, and it takes you in darker directions. For instance, when it goes to the chorus, uh, with the veil off our eyes, we'll truly see, and we'll march on, and it won't really take long. It won't really take us very long. Um, things become again more imminent. I believe this is probably directly recurring, uh, referring to the protest movement, perhaps. Um, so there definitely is there definitely is is, is, is a slant going in here, but it, it's the kind of thing that that uh, that that's it's simply raising awareness, and I, I yeah. think that's exactly why he put this album out at the at the moment that he did, and well, it's a success in that regard. Going on to Sugar Daddy, which is track four. What I like about this song is instantly we're engaged in this track. First of all, we get a stronger piano sound. I think there'd been hints of pianos in the other track, but in this, the keyboard or piano is playful from the moment it starts and takes you. It it, it takes you on a journey. It really just pulls <laughs> you in, almost like you know in the it, in the it, old Warner Brother. I'm gonna do a John metaphor. You know in the old Warner Brothers cartoons where a, a beautifully scented food had almost a steam hand come out and pull the character by the chin, yes. drawing them yes, forward? Yes, I do. This Considering song, I've been immersed in cartoons from my latest article that was released today. Um, <laughs> this song does that. Absolutely with that piano work from the moment it starts. Well, it doesn't hurt that it's got a beautiful slap bass riff going on top of this that's, that's just purely complementing what the piano's doing. The bass is important. At the, uh, at the same time, I, I, I feel like the piano needs to be needs to really be mentioned here because we haven't really uh, uh, mentioned that so much yet on this album here, and that's the main player at this point. It comes forward like, like Oscar Peterson level jazz. That kind of that kind of carefree nature. A lot of the stuff that Oscar Peterson did was very much just like extremely intricate but very playful lots of just you know dancing around the notes very uh astute staccatos that kind of thing um but it comes off as the sort of thing you'd, you'd expect a, a a bizarre little puppet show to be going on in the meantime like I, I could see this on a sketch at the muppet show practically the way that the piano just just glides along here very crisp um and yet it, the funny thing is it does have a very slow build over the course uh, over the larger course of this track, and that's where I bring into some of the things you mentioned, John. For instance, the the slap bass enters in, and it's it's sparse. It's not like you're getting like a full on a full on phrase with the slap bass. You're getting you're, you're getting, getting elements. Acc- you're accents. getting accents, and you're getting color, of course. And that's also exemplified with the horns that get introduced later, the guitar Absolutely. that gets introduced later. There ends up being. Falsetto From, is another oh, main man. thing. And oh, yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll even note the, the timestamp in this department only because it took me by storm for something that was so instrumentally driven. Up to this point, uh, 1 minute 15 seconds, you get this full false falsetto flourish. And the only thing that I could think to compare this to, just because of how crisp this is, and I guess we're overusing the word crisp here, but as if you could make vocals sound mechanical. That's the way I hear it. Um... And the only thing I can compare it to is the Seinfeld theme. It's the only thing. And only one episode of the Seinfeld theme, by the way, because there was only one episode in which the vocals actually stepped in over the existing slap bass theme that everybody knows. There was one episode they actually did use a little vocal overlay, and I guess they decided, eh, it's a little bit too awkward. But it, it used almost the same exact effect. And this is taking that and expanding it in several different directions. It doesn't just come in at 1 minute 15 seconds, it comes in at several other points later on. And it comes in very close to the ear, usually several different layers. Um, very high falsetto, kind of close, doing, let's say, uh, you know, thirds or perhaps sixths over the course of a brief phrase. In this case, in the vocals case, I would use the word phrase, not just uh, color, because they do seem to to fill out um, 
to, to make a statement of, of, of sorts, even if it's over the span of only like two or three seconds. And this song, interestingly enough, to follow a song that you said musically sounded very dripping with sex, even though it was obviously about something completely different, this one musically didn't sound as sexually charged, but the lyrics are incredibly sexually charged. This is this is a dirty, dirty song. There's no other way to put it. And what's interesting is that kind of swap. Adding this dichotomy to the album, I think, is interesting. The fact that, you know, you follow up a sexually charged instrumental song with a sexually charged lyrics. Well, again, song. I never said the entire previous track was sexually no, charged. No, of course. It, it was, was really, really just the one moment. It's a, it's a way in which you interpret it because of ways in which that soundbite has been has been used alternatively speaking. Um, right. But here, it, it it the the lyrics clearly are are that, and the horn accents that come along with the the awesome bass and the fantastic piano work really kind of gives that that impression for the song. And I think it's a really interesting construction. Also, the vocal distortion that he uses here too. Typically, I'm not a huge fan of distortion, but he's using it in moments for for a kind of impact or emphasis. But I think really Say a, a culmination or a, a climax. Yeah, a climax even. The vocals, <laughs> the vocals, the way they're used, not just the crispness, but just it, it it marries the lyrics to the emotion that the lyrics are trying to portray. Well, it is so it it's so complicated what he's doing because it's almost as if what the song is saying and what the song is showing in its instruments are two different things that just are blending together too perfectly. There's so much complication, so much stuff just going on here that this song, I'll be honest, was very intimidating for me to listen to the first time. (laughs) I'm trying to pick out every little thing. I'm trying to pick out the horns in exclusion to something else, the guitar in exclusion to something else. I, I was almost trying to dissect the song without trying to treat it as a whole. But see, there's also there's also a level here where where it's possible to to overanalyze because of the fact that a lot of this is built around a very simple jam that, that is built around one chord. Almost the entire track is built around that chord, uh, regardless of how of how intricate the piano can get at times. But then again, piano is also following a pretty steady riff. It still uh, manages to remain interesting throughout. Um, but you, what you are interested in is for the little spurts of other things like the falsetto, like the the brass swells, um, like the the random funk guitar and things like that. These things may come off as those little, like, like short Seinfeldian uh, uh, flourishes, pops. pops and flourishes, but um, but still, at its core, it is still a jam. That's why it reminded me of, of one other thing that we reviewed uh, not too long ago. That was back in episode 111, My Brightest Diamond's Shape off of uh, This Is My Hand. And Shape also had a rather long, drawn-out jam at the end of that track, although it was a little bit... Uh, it was a little bit more, a little bit more solemn, um, because that track was was in that case uh, sort of describing the various different types of people, uh, types of people you could be at one given moment, for instance. But it used the same tactics, and that's the point I'm getting at. It brought in a barrage of of different of different sound bites in order to achieve uh, variety and texture. But it was all built around the same chord. In that case, it was a minor chord. Here, it's just flat out, you know, uplifting major called sugar daddy you know but it's, it's the same exact tactic it's the only thing I, I could repair i could compare it to recently we don't we don't get a lot of jams that that we all have collectively enjoyed 
Well, because a lot of them have felt meandering or or unending or... That's true. And in that regard, I I think back to, let's say, to episode 102's Fish. You know, that was... Those were gems that, after a while, you feel like there's pointlessness here. What I like also is... It's pointed. Yes, it's pointed and... As with shape. D'Angelo doesn't leave you hanging. He's bringing you along for the ride, even if you're... There's enough there that there's something to find. Even when they're jamming, there's still stuff to enjoy or to groove to. And I think this song also continues this well-connectiveness to the next track. I mean, they're paired really well. Yeah. Track five, really love. (laughs) Uh, I did not expect this type of track on the album, considering what we got. Um, Regardless of what we've been getting up till now, it's still been pretty uh, steeped in R&B. But this begins with a full-blown string quartet. Uh, in this case, uh, perhaps a double bass, cello, viola, and violin, I think. And I was mesmerized by this. I was almost as equally entranced, perhaps a little bit more so, in this track as I was back in, 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 in the beginning of Charade. It begins just in E minor, and it seems very settled in that, for starters, until we realize that it's, it's slightly unsynchronized. It starts building and 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 contracting at times uh, with few like atonal modalities just overlapping each other and each instrument it's like it, it's like it's climbing its own independent ladder but to varying degrees of height or success as we build and pass the flat 5, we build further and then we we approach the full E minor ninth chord and then finally we pause at the full fifth and we just hold it, it reduces itself once we reach the, the fifth uh, chord, and then all the other instruments drop out until you're simply holding the fifth single note. And you just hold it there, that B, constantly, while light conversation begins to build in the background. Female voices you hear, and it holds, and then enters Spanish guitar. It, it's, it's literally on a, on, a, on a mission to knock you off your toes and say, okay, didn't expect that. Did it at the beginning of the track, did it again one minute in. It, absolutely beautiful, from which we enter a spell where it begins to solo over E minor. E, uh, over e minor. Now, this romantic noir feeling that it, it creates, that it culminates with the Spanish guitar, I believe is the perfect answer to Sugar Daddy. Pre-climax, post-climax. This is the pillow talk that happens <laughs> afterwards, and it's just a profession of love. It is a beautiful combination of those strings and the Spanish plucked guitar, the flamenco-style guitar that that just shows love and yet still has a, a, an ominous nature to it. Still is a little bit dark, kind of harkening back to the to the earlier part of this album. It's not a hundred percent playful, but the Spanish remains playful. It's the solidly propelling bass that does keep it grounded, that does still keep it serious, so that you know what's going on is a real thing, that this is really love. The Spanish guitar, I just would say the Spanish guitar, I wouldn't describe it necessarily as playful. There's something just just hands down beautiful about this section. I I think it's, it's less about being... Uh, about being 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 evasive at this point, and I mean, if, if anyone knows just a, a morsel of 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 traditional Spanish classical guitar, um, they, they probably are going to know what to expect. It's the kind of thing you just sit back and I don't know, pull out a mojito and just enjoy. Well, what the song really builds, setting-wise, also is essentially think of 
any black and white romantic movie that has a bit of a darker side. Obviously, one of the first ones that comes to mind is Casablanca. But anything in that vein, just this this beautiful love, but it's not perfect. Everything's not perfectly right, but everything's heading in the right place. And I mean, the lyrics really convey that too. I mean, there's a pairing of lines that I love just because of how beautifully simple they are. It comes in the middle of the song. When you touch me there, when you make me tingle, when our nectars mingle. It's just that pairing of lines. And it's... it's it is a little cutesy wootsy when yeah. you do. I mean, I, again, I would not use the word playful for this to, to describe yeah. the music, but the the lyrics themselves do carry that uh, at times. It's not, it's not, it's not the highest level of, of like, um, of, of, I guess romantic poetry here. But you are looking at stuff. It's, it's beautiful sweet. It's gonna and make sweet. You, yeah. yeah, it's gonna make you a little bit, you know. Uh, and th- that's the conveyance of the song, both musically and lyrically and vocally. And I really just kind of like how this track locks together emotionally. And the best part, though, is that you got all of this just from that intro that Steve talked about. You didn't need all the other parts. They just further enhance it. It's true. In that intro, you it does manage to capture something. It captures something broad. It captures something broad in scope. And it, I, I do have to go back to what John mentioned. Romantic noir, I think, sums it up very, very well, uh, especially considering that when you're looking at specific genres, it kind of plays around with a few different things. Like I said, I described it as having, like, atonal modalities. Like, it seems to be borrowing from this, like, post-romantic period, but it's also using, like, a lot of expressionism by implementing these these little atonal modalities in what otherwise would be like straight up uh straight up e major um excuse me a straight up e minor uh um progression and just building from that from one to five it doesn't seem complex but it's because of all the intricate overlaying work that make you see that there's something a lot more complex going on it I mean, something romantic is is easily where my mind first went, just because I was I was zoned out, and then obviously the Spanish guitar solidifies that when you reach it. Um, but it does make me also go back to something you said, and that is the fact that everything doesn't seem perfect. Yeah. If that is, the lyrics would not actually hint that at all. But yet I I'm I'm willing to override the lyrics simply by uh, those those atonal elements that you find in in the intro itself. But what I really like, though, is that what you just said, that it's not Again, perfect. Again, exactly. It ties into even the title of the track. Really love. Real love is not perfect. And even though it feels perfect and you convey this kind of perfection through how you profess your love, there's always stepping stones, blocks, hurdles. And you get a sense of that just tonally from right, the song. That's the only reason why I'm, I'm I'm saying, of course, that I don't think it needs to be even stated in the, in, in the lyrics here. Yeah. And that goes back to what you said. The music uh, the music supplies that perfectly. And I, I can take that, you know, for what it's worth and, and you know, read the lyrics. It, it, I don't need them. I really don't need them. And that's, that's the mark of a really, really great track. It comes across as honest, as truly earnest, and still a little bit wishy-washy because he's not a a real person is not necessarily going to be a poet it's going to be someone who just speaks from the heart that's what i think it really just boils down to true and then all and then in that vein it it uses some of the uh some of the corniest tricks in the book i mean literally think of all the elements that we've just gone through we go from your 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 classic romantic noir as you'd find it in in old movies and such then you go to the spanish guitar and then what do we end on harp 
Yeah. Every instrument that has ever embodied love to the greatest number of people is implemented in this in this track. That's and yet, even though the song is chord. filled to the brim, boiling over with cliches, it doesn't feel cliche. No. And it, that's what I think is very truly natural. great about the construction of this song. I think it's uh, it, it just boils down to the fact that its flaws, its actual flaws, were on purpose. That atonal ideas, they were... They were necessary to make it a honest, true profession. Sincere, even. Yeah. Yeah. From here, we go to a song that's not very different from the album, but for sure a different direction from what we were just listening to. This song is called Back to the Future, Part 1. Insinuating we will get a Part 2 later, which we do. It starts out right off the bat with a very electronica-esque sound. I made a crack when it first started within the first 10 seconds that we were suddenly uh, supplanted with a, a Flying Lotus record. It's not. It, but it, I made the joke because it did sound very similar, at least in the first 10 to 15 seconds, that's something he had done on some of the more favorable tracks from the record we reviewed. Very quickly, it goes into... Oh, okay, we're back on course. Yeah. The the, the plucky intro really does go into a more R&B-oriented groove. Um but it seems to me to settle there fairly quickly. That that rhythm that comes up, what the bass starts doing, it, it, it settles there. But here's the thing. Where it settles, I love. I don't care. I don't care that it's, it's not really doing anything for that rhythm. Because that rhythm just becomes f- purely infectious. It just, I love it. I, I stay there. I want to stay there. <laughs> well, it's true that this track doesn't really offer you the same uh, the same heap of transitions as, let's say, other tracks would have. Um, at this point, you're right. Most of it is, is a pretty static... Uh, I'm, I'm not ready to call it a jam yet or something. But it, it does... I guess you kind of interpret it as that uh, after a while. It still uses some of the uh, tricks he's used earlier. For instance, like poking around, trying to like insert color by by uh, a manner of improvisation that that almost feels like it's actively making it up as it goes along you know a lot of improvisation will of course try to hide that fact and, and this sort of seems to um well meditextually kind of avoid that um it, it wants you to, to 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 feel the sensation that this is impromptu um also you get little things that are hinted but not not filled out for instance, as opposed to the full-blown ninth chords that we got in previous cases here, just kind of get ninth intervals. You get intervals that just imply chords. You don't really have them uh, in full. Um, and then, of course, the bass is, is, is pretty steady. Uh, I don't think there's anything really as complex going on in that department. But the funk guitar is poking around quite nicely. That that was always that was kind of nice to, to glide along with. Um, it wasn't as mind-blowing a track at first. In it, it's a slow, it's a, a slow reveal, as opposed to, let's say, a slow burn. Instead, this track kind of grows on you. There's nothing in the beginning that's just like, oh, yeah, I'm immediately into this. It seems like it's par for the course for, um, for, for his work at this point. But then, when we enter into the chorus, we get this string motif that seems to come back over and over again, and that's the first thing that I found really addicting, like the kind of thing they could have done endlessly without me noticing. It was... It was this sort of doubled uh, string motif. It seems like it was doubled by the vocals at times. And it was this, this rhythm 
just went over and over again. Let's say played in, in, in four beats. This would be played one on the two, on the three, then a little bit offset, more in like the fourth, sixteenth note, say, of that, and then uh, the, the eighth note of the four, and then we go over it again. And that that rhythmic motif repeats over and over again. It And it's just, it's addicting. I know I explained it quite coldly, but does not do it justice. Absolutely addicting. But what I also really like about the structure of the song, and it, this kind of lends to what you're talking about, about it slowly building. Mm-hmm. I must be John today, because I've got a lot of metaphors up here. Oh. But this one, this song feels like walking into a party of your old friends, but you're reacclimating with. Because it has that hangout vibe. I mean, it's the murmur of chatter in the background. It's the way it feels somewhat improvisational. It gives this kind of reminiscing, chill-out kind of feel, which, I mean, the title and the lyrics allude to. And I really like that from the build, this slow reveal that you're talking about, it's kind of like reacclimating with an old group of buddies. And you wouldn't have perhaps gotten that from some of these lyrics here, which which put that quite on the nose. Um, If you win, no matter if you lose... You gotta come back again, pay some dues. Back in Richmond, shit ain't changed a bit, too, and the chorus brings it full force. Say, I just wanna go back, baby, back to the way it was, now, now, now. I mean, it's this this perpetual, all right, right reacclimation, that, that you feel the necessity to kind of like revisit a person that he once was, and you feel his, his, his social anxieties almost in that department as well. Yet it still maintains that party atmosphere with the way the, the vocals are almost gregarious. They're almost like over the top in some of the inflection, and I this I don't think he's been this on point with just using his vocal range since the first track. It's just up, down, left, right. The way he he works it, it just that's the propelling feature for me in this song. That's what moves the song along. For all the rhythm and the groove that you're going into, for all the the staying power that everything else has in the flourishes. That is what brings me from the beginning to the end of this track. And I also just like that this track, like the last one, and what really does connect it to the previous track, is the fact that music and lyrics marry pretty well, and you don't need one to have figured out the other. They both exist well together and uniform, but the music itself gave this feel of this chill-out reminiscing, catching up with old friends, and the lyrics just support it, and I love that structure. And he's done that quite a few times on this record, this perfect marriage almost of all the pieces, which sounds silly to say because it should be obvious, but isn't always, and I really like what he does with it here. There have been very few cases in the album up to this point where uh, he's ever settled into something that I didn't fundamentally enjoy, in which case the word repetition is, 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 is meaningless. You'd have no reason to even bring it into question because, of course, if you like something, when it comes to music, that's always a good thing. Keep going with it. You know, uh, it, very often, it's, it's, if, as long as you stumble upon the right thing, then you can't overdo it. At, and at I the, think his timing is perfect. At the end of the day, this song, for me, was just a perfectly enjoyable long-distance drive. I'm not speeding. I'm not breaking any records. I'm not going back and forth, but this is cruising. I'm I'm in a zone. I'm going with it. I don't care if it's just the same tree, 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 fence, fence, fence going by. I'm just enjoying the location I'm in. And it's that still furthers that metaphor that I brought up, like you and three other guys on a long road trip just cruising, just chilling. You know, it, it really does convey that. And it, it it blends really well into the next track. Even though the next track starts off a little bit different, Till It's Done, parentheses, Tutu, 
starts with a drum roll that goes that goes into something that's ethereal again. Well, it's kind of like romantic murmuring in the background. I almost would liken it to like like water ripples, and it's the the, the vocals are very light in the background. It's just sort of like la da 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 da. Very very very. Um, very non-confrontational, but this is another one of those cases, and I will step forward with to say that uh, the bass, it, it has not missed a beat. The bass comes back, and again, it feels very, very independent, like it could just hold a melody unto itself. Um, and it, in this case, it even hugs, like, the left ear, if you're listening in stereo, so uh, it's, 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 it's literally independent. It feels like it is separate from the pack, and, and the one constant in all of this. I'd written down, it kind of reminded me of Golden Shores and Sunshine, this kind of beach walk, which is almost exactly the scene you guys were talking about a moment ago. Sure. And this is completely married to to the lyrics and the vocals, because this is sort of just being an existentialist. You're, you're, You're going out and, what are we doing here? From the very beginning, in a world where we all circle the fiery sun with a need for love, what have we become? Tragedy flows unbound, and there's no place to run till it's done. And that line, till it's done, gets repeated throughout the song as almost a chorus. It's only that, that, that short little phrase work, but there's no real structure here in, in how they're singing. It's the back and forth and the inflection on that one line, till it's done, that, that, that gets me, that grips me every time he says it. Well, with my beach imagery that I was talking about, it was like a sunset walk on a beach introspectively, and that's exactly what you just said, and the I know, lyrics it's, convey it's, it. It's right there. One of, the, one of my favorite so you lines... You two have one of those moments <laughs> One of my favorite lines in this, question ain't, do we have the resources to rebuild? It's, do we have the will? And when he says will, I get a chill going, going up and down my spine, because it's just... So, oh, wow, yeah, did you ever really think of that? Now, it's a little conceited to say that's super deep or anything, but it's a question that, you know, people don't ask. So it's it's exactly that. It's existentialism. It's introspective, eh, two opposite I, sides I, of the word, but I, it's still I can't still go that works. far with this. I feel like this is not... I mean, there's definitely a concern in this track, uh, albeit a little bit lighthearted. For instance, he uses uh, the the vocals in which he uses to to describe all this is that very like odd smoky falsetto that he has, which is I guess one of his many ranges of vocals. Um, but but in this particular case, he kind of like he, he puts a little bit of character into it. He he beefs it up while at the same time really really uh, singing way way the hell up there. It, it's 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 um. It's tough to describe. I feel like this this is the first track, the first example where I felt like things started to kind of peter out for me a little bit. I didn't think that the fundamental groove was as strong enough here, considered, considering it had followed so many great tracks. And then when I step over to the lyrics, I don't know. I, this is why I can't use those those words. I don't. I think this track is anything but existential. I think it's a track that shows, as I said, concern. I think there's a concern for for, I guess, the state where we're in, which I suppose there's some fundamental existentialism here, but it's not really, it's not the kind of thing that, that we're not all regularly uh, asking in, in, in today's world. Most people have, have, I guess, already gone through the motions where we heard about the carbon pollution. We know about most of the stuff where I think that he's, he's described. This is not, this is not a, a it's, it's not a barrage of, of new things for me. This is not like, 
This is not the same kind of flavor of the day. Well, that's why I was saying it's more introspective. It may not be news to you, but it's it, it sounds like a mulling over song. Like, he's mulling over these things okay. internally. And again, it adds to my metaphor of the walk on the beach thinking to himself. I think that's ultimately what the song is trying to convey. I will agree, musically, it wasn't as strong as a bunch of the previous tracks. I liked it. I didn't dislike it by any means. I mean, like you said, that smoky falsetto that he has... It's impossible not to like. It's it's just it's a beautifully engaging voice. But the song as a whole left me wanting a little bit just because of what we had come from. I think I'm a oh. little bit biased because I am one who loves to hear songs about social discord. But at the same time, <laughs> I'm always I love a, I'm the always vocals. a little bit a little bit wary about songs with, with social discord. I love discord. his vocals. This I think is just so solid vocally that it's it's just pure enjoyment for me. We well, also have to think about it in the context of the album. I mean, the album has been pretty off the wall uh, up to this point, and I feel like this is something where the vocals were a little bit more, uh, the melody was a little bit more discernible. Everything seemed a little bit tighter. Granted, he he does use that voice, which is is solid, um, but a kind of again cognitive dissonance. You, you'd sort of broken the mold a little bit for this album and brought us back. It seems like the track retreated, which again, artistically speaking, is more than appropriate for this kind of track. If you are uh, in that sort of question yourself, question everything kind of kind of mood. I don't think it's necessarily introspectiveness. I think it's just you know, you took some minutes to think. You took some time to think. Sure. And I think also though that reeling back really is on point and on purpose only because of the next track and the way the sound goes for track eight, prayer. Well, because this is more appropriate in the introspective department. For instance, until it's done, most of these things have been pretty external. Most yeah. of the objects in which he's he's thinking about, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the world. Yeah. And and this song, I mean, from the moment it starts, has this kind of haunting undertone. And it has bells tolling through almost the entire track. The bell doth toll is the first thing that comes to mind. That famous just snippet of a line. But I, I'm not disliking them. No, I like it. So he, it's, it adds an ominous nature to it. See, like is a strong word. I, I don't dislike it either. It's interesting. Steve said this a lot when we were listening to it. I don't know how I feel about the song other than it's interesting. This is definitely very different from anything he had done previously because it's not dark undertones. It's very obviously an ominous sounding song. Well... It is a really, really interesting pairing, as I just said, considering he spent most of this album kind of offsetting us with something, you know. There's always been that one element that he really wants to throw us with or introduce uh, wildly new. And then in the last case, it seemed like a little bit receded. Here, it's, it's, it's full force. And he does it with a pretty interesting uh, tactic. First of all, we start off with that, again, that sort of warbling synth that we've gotten before, but in this case it's a little bit different. And we end up with a four-chord progression, or at least just four, the, the notes themselves are hammered out. I don't know if you get the full chords here, but I get the distinct impression that this is in C-sharp major. But if it is C-sharp major, it's the wonkiest C-sharp major I've ever heard. There's definitely a lot of other little, um, little oddball, non-chord tones just hammered in there to make this sound just a little bit off. But... Another reason you hear it off, even if that's not the case, is because of the fact that in your in your uh, in your in this four chord progression, you get you'd expect that to, of course, begin on the one on let's say rhythmically the 
the first measure. If you're going to spend a measure in each chord, well then the first measure is going to be in your home key, and you will continuously go back to that cycle. It's not the way this goes about it. Instead, this starts off in C. Not C-sharp, C. The seventh. Really, really close to, to where you're supposed to be, but not there. And then the second chord, that brings you home, as you'd later interpret it. And then it brings you down to F-sharp, and then up to G-sharp, before the rhythm anchors us back to C. But that is not home. That is not where this is at. In which case, if you were to actually count that in this, then you're getting as that as home. If you were to count that as home, then you're getting a Locrian modality, which is about as, as, uh, as evasive as they come in music. Um, because that 7, when you anchor yourself rhythmically on that 7, it, it, it's, it's, it's unnerving. And I think that's one of the main reasons we, we have this sort of like academic approach to this track. And they're like, oh yes, well, I like the fact that I am a little bit unnerved, but at the same time, we would probably never like put this track, of all the tracks in this album, we would never put this one on repeat. It's the kind of thing that you listen to as a curiosity. But there is that reason, of course, from before. And that is, here is the chance where we can use, I think, justifiably the word introspective. This is the chance where he opens it up to prayer. Yeah. And it seems the kind of inward darkness that you would expect when you're exploring your own inner, inner demons as opposed to what's out there, things that are on the news, things that are, that are tangible and that, as I said uh, in the last track, perhaps a little bit, you know, been there, done that. Uh, unless you're going to talk about specifics, you know, it's not simply a matter just to simply bring up carbon pollution. It's a matter to actually, like, talk about it from a, a categorical standpoint. Here, we're talking about some, some, uh, some things that are, that are harder, to, harder to pinpoint. Soul prayer, soul prayer, hallowed be thy name. Kingdom come, will be done, oh yeah. I do the devil on your feet. I know that he will. He will try to stop you from seeing your days, but you gotta pray all the way till you get on. I believe that someday we will rise. I know that he will try to harm you, and if you can, I know that you will make it to the promised land. But you gotta pray, you gotta pray. Oh, you gotta pray for redemption. Lord, keep me away from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and all this confusion around me, give me peace. I believe that love. Now, of course, this is taken from the Lord's Prayer, which is, you know, Our Father, hallowed be thy name. You know, I'm raised Catholic, so I know this is kind of in my being at this point. But, like, it, it, is, it, it, it reacts to that. It reacts to the kind of humility that I think is presented in that prayer itself. So, because that prayer is obviously, it, it, it comes to... It opens yourself to the idea, of course, that there is a higher power and that you are subject completely to his authority and his will. And when you enter into the situation with that level of humility, it, it, it really it, 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 it establishes how mortal you are and how weak you are in the grand scheme of things. And I think that's what shows through here in this, 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 uh, this strange modality, and that's the, the, the awkwardness and, and perhaps unwilling to cope with with that that fact itself i'm gonna use one of my ever famous metaphors here we have not a church prayer this is the furthest thing from this is the back alley streets of the red light district mm. this is the same sort of location i found in back in the heist neon cathedral the idea of your church is not a place of sanctity. It's just too loose, too dissident, too dark to be a holy place. But it's still 
is a place that you can be saved at. It still has something to it. You can hear those church bells off in the distance. You can still be saved. And it's not just a, play, a prayer for himself. It's a prayer for others as well. It's still, it's introspective, but it's still using you a little bit too much for it to just be trying to save his own soul. It, there's still a little bit of selflessness about this. It has a sermon quality to it. And he might not be a, a preacher on a pulpit, but he's definitely a person of charisma and attention on a soapbox of some kind. But of course, the looseness to this prayer, um, and I, I'm even going to like put that for the sake of, of analysis, like in a kind of quote here, because it's it's... It's very, if we go by your interpretation, John, then this would be rather ironic. Um, and I do think that's one possibility. At the same time, we also know if we're, if we're uh, going to treat this as like first person, uh, as you said, he was, he's Pentecostal, correct? Yes. Yeah. So we know that he is coming from a place where uh, he believed or perhaps still believes. Um, and in either, in either case, you're dealing, I feel like the way you want to go is the fact that, that, you're using it so uh, using the, that he's using this track so ironically, such that he is 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 on the last thread, perhaps of some kind of thread. And we're not gonna like pin this down directly on him. It's just let's for the sake of of the album here, let's say the character as it is. Um, and and I feel like that's not necessarily the case. I feel like there's still a belief, a very strong belief that it's not hanging on a thread, but that it's it's the inability to to cope. And this was my original interpretation with the fact that you have very little control over your own being and you're putting yourself up essentially for um for for god's will as anyone would put it that's why i'm saying it's not just about him that's why i think it's also a prayer him praying for others as well just his idea of he's not just trying to save his own soul but he's also trying to save other souls sure by by asking for intervention on their behalf. And it's that idea that I think kind of marries our two, our two pieces together here. It, there is an inevitability and a, a sort of a bowing down towards a higher purpose, yeah. yes. But that, that seedier location, I don't think it's just him. I don't think it's, it's, it's too much you. It's too much the person he's trying to save. And trying to get God's will to impact them. Yeah, and it's interesting because the tra the lyrics themselves would would really not hint in any case that there was any any doubt. It's really just, I guess, that again that that humility and that urgency, which again is more reflected by by I think the music itself. the The lyrics really are are rather close. Um, they're a little bit looser, but they're rather close to the original Lord's Prayer. Um, if if you go to the music though. You get other areas aside from just that that awkward four chord progression that I dis that I uh, that I cited. There's also the manner of rhythm in the in this piece that is uh, kind of awkward. Not the fact, of course, you do have that that four four time, so everything is very even. Um, the chords are very with that that time, but it's it's about the little in between moments, the inserts that you get. For instance, uh, you have the illusion of the hi hat stepping in here and slowing down at moments almost coming to a stop like it's used like like it's losing the capacity to keep time now it doesn't it's it's regular if you if you if you still feel it on let's say every eighth note but it does have these very quick trills in moments like like whereas let's say it would normally go from a 16th note into that next eighth note and sometimes it doesn't do that you don't hear that that lead in 
you hear it briefer. You hear it just as, let's say, a 32nd note or, or a 64th note, a very, very short trill prior to the moment in which the beat would land, as it would regularly on the 8th note. So you interpret that as a delay, because the lead-in now does not fall where you expected it to, even though the beat does fall where you expected to. And that was, I think, one of the most unnerving things about this, even perhaps more so than, than the tonal portion. Which is why I equate it to being the furthest thing from a church you can think of. Yeah. Being those back alleys, being that that place where souls get damned. But I think also... Yeah, it's this, it warps your consciousness in that regard. Well, and I think the warped nature of this track lends to why I might not have personally liked it, but I think that's the point. Um, also, the fact that the outro felt a little long and a little repetitive. That was my main detractor in this, uh, in this song. Mine too, yeah. but I, again, I think this all artistically was to the point. This is all part of that track in this, this warped nature. So I won't fault it too much for that, other than my own personal enjoyment. But really, at this point on this track, was not the purpose of this track. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would even argue you weren't supposed to enjoy it. You were supposed to be intrigued or interested, which is what it accomplishes. Yeah. Um, from there we go to track nine, which is Betray My Heart, um, which goes a different direction. I mean, it's going from this kind of darker tone of this almost introspective and prayer in the seedy place to discussing how you wouldn't betray one's own heart, that you wouldn't choose love over faith or faith over love, that your heart can still guide you, this kind of idea. Now here... I want to start with the lyrics because this this preacher persona ends up coming back and I think this lyrically does a great job of kind of marrying the two different individuals we're sort of getting on this album. The person who is speaking to the world and the person who's speaking to a specific individual. Um, really Love has a much different feel than what the charade was doing. So here it's... As the day must have its sun, as the night must have its moon, sure as both must rise and fall, I'll be there to see you through. It's a profession of love. It really is that. Especially with the chorus, I will never betray my heart. But it's not love in any one specific way. It's, it's all ambiguous. Kinds of it's yeah. very ambiguous in that. And unfortunately, in that, I think that's why it has to use use poetry that isn't exactly to to uh, to its own standards, to this album's own standards. Yeah, um, that's a little bit in, of an attractor. In the attempt to be so broad, it, it it encapsulated very broad terminology. For instance, the the references that you hear constantly throughout the ages of the sun and the moon as being, you know, the two halves of your being that are conflicting and how can I have one but not the other if they can't be the same at once? It's, you know, it's it was a little bit tiring, I guess, when you really, really look at the lyrics. Um, but if you, if you go back to the music, and I, I guess I want to say it's still a little bit in the same department, it used a kind of textbook fashion to to deliver these lyrics in such a broad fashion. The bass itself is not as... Um, it's not as engaging. It's more of a walking bass. It's a textbook walking bass. And and you, Matt, originally said you, you, you heard, like, beat poetry to go along with this. It sounded it is, like... It is loose. It felt like something that you would find in a dive bar, someone on stage speaking their heart. And I think... But in this case, I feel it's like the 3 a.m. act, you know, that perhaps wasn't prime. It could <laughs> be, but also the the... the 
the less prime an act is, the more from the heart it becomes sometimes. And I feel like even though the lyrics aren't up to your standard of what the album can convey... Not my standard either. Uh, neither of your standards, and mine either. I think that the way his heavenly vocals convey said somewhat cheesy poetry still adds that other level because ultimately... D'Angelo can sing and he sings really well on this track. And even though the lyrics may not sure, and there's add plenty up, of instances where you're like, okay, of course, vocals are probably going to overshadow lyrics. It's just you know we scrutinize lyrics. Uh, sure, but um, but I was really engaged by the vocals, and it really did give it that inspirational from the heart feel that was a little cheesy but still sincere. It's not the only case in which in which he goes through with that, of course. Even later, like on the in the bridge, you know, through the storm, through the rain, I'll come running to ease your pain, like the rails that cross the trains, like the blood in your veins. It's just again, it feels a little bit hackneyed, you know, in, in this approach. I again I think it fits, but this is a looser one. This is one that I have to make more of a stretch, uh, especially if you're considering if if you're taking this track to be a an exploration of 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 all the different conflicts that we face, then this is one of those like, okay, so you went that broad. Well, it 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 boils down to the song kind of comes off as like an affirmation of solidarity. It's just saying I'm gonna be there for you. Uh-huh. But you're right with with such a broad idea. While I appreciate it because thematically, I like the way it marries all the different ideas that are coming in this album. But it's not. St- Specific enough, I guess, to really be impactful. Well, you certainly certainly get solidarity in the music itself. You have repetition here, for instance, uh, that 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 consistent, you know, going through the the entire measure. You have that that fall on the beat, one, two, three, four, and then on the second measure, you get the one, two, silence for the third and fourth. And it has that matter, just pulling the phrase out on that that third beat in the second measure. Stay silent for two beats. The continues the pattern over and over again, and it's like it's breaking form just for that little like time to catch its own breath. But you know, then you get a sense that your breathing is 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 almost mechanical in a fashion. It doesn't feel as fluid as some of the other tracks, as some of the more like like funk invested tracks. In general, what we have here is just an entire jam in A minor, um, and and I think maybe it shifts a little bit to like kind of a uh, might be like a diminished chord might just go up to diminish and pull back to A minor. I wasn't 100% on that, but it still, it still felt a little bit weak for the, for the album. Uh, while I'm inclined to agree for the overall picture, I feel like that broadness was intentional because, again, when talking about a broad version of love, you want to bring in as many people as possible, and that's what this was designed for, and especially considering the scene I described. I mean, that's what any kind of performance like that would do. If you're... If your talent, skill, or whatever else, or construction is not as strong as it has been in other places, you want it to be broad because at least then you can relate. And relatability is just as important sometimes. I accept all that, but <laughs> he put all his cards in the line for the vast majority of this album up to this point. If he thinks at this point he has to kind of reach out and say, and, and throw you a bone as a... Uh, um, I don't as, think as it's, an impressionable audience. As but an, I don't think it's for, as a stiff But I don't think member. it's the art artist. I think this is still the character. This the character at this point, after all the ups and downs, ultimately is still giving you those open arms. And I think it's more to that. The artist himself, of course, D'Angelo doesn't need to reel you in at this point. We've been reeled in since the first track. Mm-hmm. But I think for the character that's been developed over this arc, through or the theme rather. He's trying to bring you back in because there were some questions in the previous tracks. Not everything was perfectly solid. So, you know, he wants to 
reaffirm. Okay. He's finding reaffirmation. He's found his he's found his center, as it were, in this track. Something that at least he can hold on to. I will never betray my heart. At least there's that. It entered into a uh, into a, a, a cheesy operetta moment, but I'll grant it that. As we go on from there into track ten, um The door. The door that we we enter into some uh some darker territory because we enter into the metaphor, of course, what is the door? Following a track like like uh, like track nine, you're kind of going to wonder what what that one that what that title would mean. Um, and the funny thing is, it it seemed almost equally carefree, as if we were even lifting spirits further than track nine delivered us. We enter another kind of jam, and this seemed to be even in a, another safer key. It was like C major, and what do we get? Whistling, you know, you can't get any more lighthearted than that, um, and it was just—it it was so carefree. I almost found it deadening, to be honest. Yeah, there were certain things about this song that did did keep it emotional because while it had that kind of smiling aspect with the whistling, the 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 plastered grin, little things, the the. Almost off-key use of inflection in his vocals, the kind of unraveling nature with some of the actual note work. I mean, at times, he went places I didn't quite expect. It was falling down a little bit on a key, so we're not, I'm, I'm not really feeling a, a steady flow. It's like the whole thing is unraveling as he's going along, because mm. this, this really became sort of a plastic smile for me. He yeah, it, it does have I that kind of that as much, but perhaps perhaps you caught you caught a layer in the, in this one that I didn't. Um, the, I'll admit that I'm capable. It, it did <laughs> musically sound like there was it, ultimately initially at the first moment it had this strolling, cute kind of charming sound, the whistling, very happy go lucky. But as it went on, John was right; it almost felt like false bravado or false charm. This kind of put a smile on your face, don't let them see you cry kind of feel. Well, I did I did segue into this, uh, you know, again with the notion that the door, track called The Door, would, would, would hint at more than, than, you know, well, actually, there's really only one metaphor we have for a door, and that is literally just, you know, moving from one place into another. And, and what had me uh, considering this track in somewhat of a deeper context was, of course, the lyrics. Beginning at the very, at the beginning, I told you once, but twice. You wasn't very nice. In your hands, you held my life. I told you once, but twice. My love, don't lock yourself out that door. No, 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 don't lock yourself out that door. Behind a silky shade, you danced the masquerade. On a float in your parade, and on the music played, my love, don't lock yourself out that door. It's, it's this is the kind of thing where I feel like it's less it, it's less toward himself as it is more toward the other person. This is more like a a... Maybe he really has found some kind of center, and and and, and it's it's questioning the other person's. Uh, well, the other person's or the center. other person's question. At some point, you have yeah. to, of course, you know, say, "Well, not everything is my fault. What was me?" <laughs> well, also the obvious thing here is, regardless of what's actually being said, there's a conflict. There is a disagreement. It's not a conflict in the aggressive term, but a conflict is in just a disagreement, a detachment, a miscommunication, even. In the previous nine songs here. There is so much self-confidence that this is a point where we're actually seeing some cracks in this persona where, where we've come to understand. There, everything that is, that is said throughout this album up until this point was very much self-affirmed, 
so full of attitude. It was facts. It was just bare bones. I'm going to be here. This is love. Really love. Sugar daddy. I, real sex stripping. I'm going to do things to you. Everything's or squared. 1,000 deaths and the charade and, and, the, and the, the message that's coming across is very much a, a strong persona. But here, this is definitely a step towards a weaker aspect. This is somebody actually talking to somebody else and it's not perfect. This is, a, this is really a, a loss of that perfection of the person. I love it for that aspect. I think one of the song's real strengths, though, is that it also doesn't overstay its welcome. This construction is fitted in a much smaller format compared to the rest of the tracks on the record, and I think that structure is what makes it strong enough that it doesn't feel as much as a fall behind as, say, track nine would be, because they keep it combined to this smaller structure to kind of make the point and then move on. It's fair enough. But it implies, see, this is the kind of track that implies uh, more of a history that I want to know m more about. And I feel like I'm taking many of these other tracks in different regions. Of course, they're trying to cover different things. They're not, they're not all trying to cover, for instance, love. They're not all trying to cover politics or, or uh, the, social, um, the social powers that be at the moment. Instead, this, this, it's, it's more of a disparate kind of thing. And yet, at this point, I kind of want to know more about these two characters. And I feel like this track is more of a teaser than anything else. Um, and I guess that's my only problem with it, is the music d doesn't really leave me room to, to fill in some of these gaps at this point. I feel like we've made a little bit of an, of an abstract jump, ironically so, in, in, in being safer. Right, but I think also that question that you have musically could be answered a little more when it l goes into the next track. Because you're the one who said that musically, Back to the Future Part 2 sounds more like The Door than Back to the Future Part 1. That is very true. It perpetuated almost the same exact group to me. I just, I, I, at least, it seemed to open it up a little bit as to more of an anthemized version of The Door, uh, where you don't really get those, those lyrics over and over again. Um, instead, but you do get, get the riff, and I, you, you get almost what, what felt like the, the, the general, um, the general pattern just beneath the whistling, but not the whistling itself. Right. But lyrically and emotionally, this song... So Back to the Future Part 1 was that reminiscing kind of... Where the gang's back together. This one is more... Mm, good old days weren't so good. And, well, and not, not even... I wouldn't even go... I would go further than that. This is... Well, okay. Part 1, yes. Let's, let's think about the good old days and everything like that. This... This is... Comparing it with the door, keeping the sound of the door there, but having these lyrics, used to getting high, now I'm just getting a buzz. I just wanna, I just wanna, I just wanna go back now. This is something bad's happened. This is, it's the door has done something. That track has led to a break of some sort, a, a sadness of some sort, and this is the pleading. This is that, that... It's almost like clawing at wanting to go backwards instead of going forward. The idea of reminiscing about your past previously, whereas here it's like you're clawing at that past because you don't want to go forward. Something's happened. And and you're right. The lyrics really do convey that. I mean, just simply the, the, the line about getting high that you mentioned, the fact that it's, you used to get high and now you just get buzz. This idea is as we grow older and as life moves on, things won't always be the same or affect you the same. It's really interesting how the the lyrics and it's really mostly just the chorus are being used in a completely different light here 
problem is that that jam session feel from the door that's being perpetuated here is still not strong. It's still a very easy to follow. I'm, I'm not getting any of the intrigue that I was getting beforehand. I'm not getting a lot of the power that I was getting beforehand. It just became a chaotic jam session for me. The problem is... And I've, and I've come across this before, although perhaps not to this degree. Um, it's almost a Future Island situation for me at this point. I, I, I'm hearing everything everything you tell me, and I think, I think it's 100% dead on. I, I, just, I feel like I can't engage to the same level because the music is just not making me feel it anymore. Yeah. The music has lost that power, and it lost it as of uh, as, as probably around prayer. Um, no, even, even before that, Till It's Done. I would say Till It's Done was the first track that could not really really hammer down a specific emotion in a strong sense from the music alone. I feel like he showed all his cards early in this album, and he had a hell of a streak going. That's just, that should be said. Um, but ever since then, I can accept these things again academically. All of them is academic. I just can't, I can't. I can't sit here and, and get on board the the, uh, the English major train in, in the same way that I, I love to because I just I, I'm not feeling it. I guess I guess I'll pull you in this in this mat. It comes down to emotions here. I want to get the same sense, the same idea of clawing backward, but I only get that from the fact that oh well, this sounds like okay, a little bit like the jam that we had just heard, but from a musical perspective, that itself taken alone could also just be stagnancy. It could be, but also to that effect, while the music is heading that direction, vocally and lyrically, the lyrics are becoming more prominent and more understandable, more intelligible, and it's adding a focus on a different place. And I think that's, that flip on the album is not necessarily a bad thing. I understand what you're saying, and I hear it, and I get that, and I get that it, it's a detractor, but now I'm focusing in on what he's saying. Are you implying the, that the more stable you get, theoretically, you get boring? Because okay. I'm, no, no, no. I'm kind of with you on that. Um, yes and no, but what I'm just saying simply is that whereas one thing was more artistically erratic and all over the place in one part of the record, now something else is. But it also is. It's getting safer. You're finding a stability, which... Metaphorically, it's not a bad idea. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. Wait, 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 wait. Before yeah, this goes on, subtle. you're you're basically chewing apart my album review. Can we do the last song and I'll start the album <laughs> review with my super metaphor that I've come up with that I really want to get into that you guys are stealing from me? <laughs> How many weeks in a row is that now? That's like five. <laughs> yes. All right. The final track, <laughs> Another oh, Life. lovely. I mean, as far as conclusions go, it's a sweeping, beautiful wrap-up track. It's got a 70s groove that I'm really digging that we didn't really get as heavy in since the earlier part of the album. Um, I mean, I just, I like it. I think it's a good close. I think his vocals sound great. I think that this kind of groove that we kind of lost for a few tracks, we're getting our groove back at the end. And I, I kind I'd of like, like exactly honest, where it's going. I'll be honest, this track pulled it all back for me. It reeled it back full force. It had the character of the beginning. It was um, the piano that I think did it most. It was that focus on the piano once again that I think focus added on a lot the, of soul Focus on the piano, it. and it didn't feel like that much of a jam. It felt like the kind of thing that would be attributed almost to to like a, a broader uh, 
like like an Elton John esque concept album. You know, the kind of really broad spectrumed uh, piano ballads that they might write back in the seventies. Um, kind of thing you might get from that or Billy Joel or modern day Ben Folds Five, but a little bit jazzier for sure. There's some there's a more chordally complex uh, approach to the piano in in this track. Lots of really bold changes, um, like strong mood signifiers and this again has been the album's strong point throughout it's always those chord changes it's always those transitions anything he does in the way of transitions is always very powerful he knows how to kind of consistently make it interesting when he decides to go in that direction but of course when he when he drifts backward and kind of just tries to drift along let's say the your your major jam as it were then you know it's a little bit more been there done that but again it's it's that that motion with the piano chord and then also the bass again goes back to the same thing i've been i've been touting the bass the entire time that is the bass is feels very independent um it has a life of its own and then of course it also at the very end of this track introduces the most impressive falsetto solo yet and vocals this, are absolute peak oh the, and they're coupled with some of my favorite lyrics on the album probably some of the most metaphorical as well and extremely personal bittersweet love going on here i just want to take you with me to secret rooms in the mansions of my mind shower you with all that you need take my hand i swear i'll take my time i'm not surprised to find that angels compete for the chance to lay down at your feet i'm going to touch in all the places that please pull you close i want to feel you breathe just pure bittersweet love going on here well, and I and think it's... a great conclusionary idea for what had been building in the last three, four tracks. Well, and you didn't even read the chorus, which really solidifies that almost tragic love nature, which is, oh, in another life, I bet you wouldn't know that. Oh, in another life, I bet you were my girl. This idea that in another life we might have been together, but it's just not right here. It, oh. it It's just, it's so bittersweet. And... Again, yeah, there's a finality to it. And I say that a lot in, in, in conclusionary tracks, but truthfully, this one really does kind of wrap up. It wrap up, wraps up this chapter of this character's story, but it doesn't wrap up his life, you know? It just wraps up this moment in time that we were privy to. And it's done very beautifully. And I think it, 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 make, it gives the record that cyclical nature that we were starting to see threads of. I will say that if you focus on the more romantic portions of this album uh, and, and, and you see that as, a, as an inner theme, an inner concept, uh, I, it, it, it never ceases to amaze me as to you know, how many albums we can come across. Because let's face it, we know that a lot of albums are going to deal with love and loss and relationships, etc. Um, but how many interesting avenues artists take in order to fulfill that. And this is yet another. Yeah. You know. And I believe that'll be where we start our wrap up. I see a very distinct personality in this album. It's it's almost a story going on here, and I believe everything does connect through to one another, that there is a very specific person that every song here talks about. It's, to be specific, it, it feels like somebody actually going through a transformation in a both public and private field. With 1,000 Deaths, The Charade, Till it's done in prayer. These, this is the public persona of an individual. While Sugar Daddy, Really Love, Even Betray My Heart and The Door are the private parts of his life that get shown through. And one suffers 
to the benefit of another. His, his, his private life does fall apart in the end because of the public persona that is created here. I'm going to play devil's advocate for you just uh, over the course of your, of your wrap-up. Um, in, in, in one particular area, uh, can you cite me a track where you, where you see the public persona? Specifically, the charade and Till It's Done. Both feel like too much of a call to arms of a kind of pulpit speech that you would get from a politician, a religious figure, or something of that sort. Whether it's somebody in, you know, Occupy Wall Street or the U.S. Senate or anywhere in between, it feels like that. But see, in that regard, I feel like I see an example of that case. I feel like I see one track, um, a couple of tracks, that happen to drift toward a more, uh, a more focused position regarding, regarding society. Um, and it, it, it's, it's very clear pretty much, uh, pretty much like where he stands on it. Um, I just think that, I think that it, it, it encapsulates several different areas. For instance, in the, I, I agree, there is that moment also where he's thinking more broadly back in the case of, uh, of, um. Betray My Heart? Yeah, Betray My Heart. Betray My Heart was, was definitely one of those things. He's thinking broadly. He's thinking, I, I just, I feel like the integration between the two, I, I understand that there may be a, a case of grappling, but I feel like that line and the, the issues that he's dealing with over the course of grappling with the two are a little bit vague. You know, many people like keep those two worlds very, very separate, and and they don't always intermingle. I, I feel like it, it, I'm waiting for the, for the proof in this album that they're, that they're related in a sense, and that I'm not just getting different examples of different things, which I wouldn't fault the album for. I just think that, you know... The theme is not everything. The full, the full concept theme, for instance, is not everything on an album. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, but just just from the title of the album, Black Messiah, it, it feels like there is too much of a central figure going on here. Just in, in so many different ways that the point of view is being portrayed with the lyrics. In, in, in so many different ways of the content being portrayed here. It, it it feels too similar in those aspects for me to consider different points of view or different characters being integrated into this album. There's too much of an identity going on here for me to make that division between the two. That That's a take it or leave it, and I do agree with some of the points that you brought up. It's not 100%. It's not obvious here. But even without that aspect, there's so much going on in this album. It's amazingly solid. There are things going on, complications I, I, I haven't heard in, in a very, very long time. That, that Stuff that hasn't come around since 60s, 70s in its integration. Um, some of it from the 80s. There's a lot of heritage in this album that I love the modernization of. I love his, his choice of creating some of these... Uh, more electronic-oriented beat work, a lot of electronic-oriented soundbite work, integrated with the, with the very crisp, clear, up-in-your-face, especially that bass, especially some of those guitar pieces. There's a lot of thought here, a lot of quality, a lot of just pure compositional work, coupled with something I could just listen to almost on loop. There's so much here that I could just groove with, that I could just go with. It's got a message. 
in a lot of places. It's got emotions in almost every track. It's got so much of the package that brings it together that other albums I've rated very highly for. And this is no different. There's there's too much going on here for it to be a bad album or even just a really good to great album. This this is an upper echelon piece for me. Um, 4.75. It's not pushing every boundary, but it's pushing a lot of them far enough along for me to really just just fall in love with this album. Okay, that's it. That's it. No, no. Okay, all right. Did I, did I end an ellipsis? I don't know. I don't know. Like he did? I don't know what I felt. Like he actually does? Does he? Does he really? Sort of. Uh, I relate to him then. I'm all about ellipsis. Ellipsis. Uh, I like very specific things about this album. Very, very isolated things. But those isolated things do encompass a good portion of this album. Which is why uh, I'm not far from upper echelon. Might even be there. Let me just try to get this out. I think that this is definitely a front-heavy album, though, for me. Uh, when it comes down to the music, first of all, I'll just speak directly to our, our, our fan, um, our fan Mark. This... <laughs> This album, especially considering you mentioned uh, my my um, my preference for for funk in many regions, because of the fact that that is exactly the kind of 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 music that is just so intricate in its own right, and in many cases doesn't always a- aim to make a statement. It is just that you put it on and you can groove with it because you are focused just on the notes themselves. You're focused on 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 how the the bass is going to enter that next set section the the little varieties that you encounter as you go between one groove to another and it, it explores the full breadth of rhythm it explores the full breadth of 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 harmony and in many cases in this album uh this is doing exactly that such that when i get to the theme i'm like okay well, there's a theme too awesome um uh typically i don't take especially if i was just listening to a funk album on my own i probably would not be doing this level of, of analysis but but th- this has become a lot more important especially recently and i i have brought this up uh especially when we're talking about uh you know my my go-to example which is uh futures future island singles episode 104 when you're talking about about theme very often the theme can can sometimes superimpose or, or, or circumvent the music entirely. And I don't know if that's always a good thing. A lot of times you need to have, have very fluid marriage throughout. But I found this, again, still for exactly half this album. The first the first stretch, every track was mixed, and I had that other thing. The, 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 the factor that is really hard to pinpoint, the little bit ineffable, and that is, of course, those moments. The singular moments, which... Obviously, when I notice, note them, I will describe them at length. And I had a, a pretty hefty amount of those. Um, one occurred in the beginning of track three. The charade was, was absolutely gorgeous in every stepwise motion, every transition. Um, but they do lead up to some plateaus. Still plateaus that I think were, were pretty expertly done in their own right and well chosen. Um, and then another one in the way of really love. I think those are my two crowning jewels of this album. But then you also have to contrast that with the fact that the remainder of the album seemed to pull a little bit from the funk, um, or rather, it seemed to lose sight of the things that really, really push you. And this is a fine line, but just as I lose track of the things that are are blindsiding you, or rather the things that are 
revealing to you new worlds, um, opening new possibilities, and keeping this album perpetually interested, in, uh, perpetually interesting to the listener, then once you reach that point, uh, around around the point of um, of till it's done, tutu. That that's honestly I think where where it feels like it's it's just falling short a bit. So I realize I'm speaking purely from the music in that perspective. When you're talking about theme, I think this is another one of those albums that treats. The, the the scenario of, of of both politics and love but separately I think that this is more of a uh, a, a mixed album in that regard I don't think there's the, this the same through line that you guys might believe P- perhaps it's there but it needs to be proven to me with the music and I think that's the fundamental thing that's, that's holding me off from from just jumping on that board um for that reason I think I'm gonna put this this is a really tough one, but I think I'm going to put this exactly where I put Future Island singles, which after after the year in review, which is uh, down to um, 4.6. I believe that was where I put it. I'm not 100% sure. That might have also been where I put St. Vincent, I'm not sure. And it would be actually for similar reasons, because of the fact that even amidst having a fairly well-constructed album where you might have some more emphasis on theme than in music it, it's because of those gaps of the later tracks where i feel like i'm being deprived of something uh of something that otherwise this artist has every capability to do and i realize it might be intentional but you know i i think that's that's a fair rating 4.6 is still it's a lot of good stuff here i just feel like you're gonna be selective i will be selective about this album it was an amazing an amazing and enlightening listen uh of uh, front to back so the first time I listened to this record last Tuesday, the day after we announced we were doing it, I was conflicted. I was intimidated. Um, I hadn't felt that way for a while. In fact, most of 2014 was fairly straightforward for me to understand. I was in the same exact boat. In I fact, had... I commented to, to the two of them here that uh, when I was staring at this album, I saw it staring back at me at points. And, and <laughs> honestly, I liked that. The last time I felt this conflicted was when we first, when Steve first threw Boards of Canada at us, and I wish I ducked, because that album I didn't know what the hell to make out of it at first, just because we hadn't really tackled such a broad instrumental endeavor. It was like doing homework. This time also, <laughs> but the difference is I have over a year's worth of experience of doing my homework. So after that first listen, I was able to focus a lot more. And what I got when we listened to it today, after several listens and listened to it together, I saw the Matrix code. And I saw it clear as day. Um, I will admit that there are um, emotionally light moments that were a bit of a bummer for me. Just because, even though it seemed artistically on purpose, for example, The Door, I wanted to embrace it as what it was, was that fake smile is a real smile. So when I kind of saw through the cracks... It was a little disappointing, but still effective. Um, I think that this album... First of all, I think that D'Angelo, after, what, a 14-year hiatus? The man was was working through a lot and knows what he's doing. I mean, he was talented then and even more so now. And I am so excited for his next record, whenever that is. Hopefully not another 14 years from now. Um... I like when an album challenges us, and I like when our fans really get us. This is a hearkening back to Heather S. and her recommendation of Owen Paulette, which still I will talk about at length because it was fantastic. Our fans are really starting to get a sense of what we're looking for, and instead of just throwing something at us that they just like, 
They're also throwing something at us that they know we can chew on. For better or for worse, we can definitely chew on it. I mean, I even feel like when Kristen gave us the Saliva album, even though it was kind of bland in a lot of places, there was still stuff to discuss. Even even if you're sure. not getting bubblegum all the time, you're getting a little bit of gristle of getting your, stuck in your teeth. And I just think that I'm really thankful for this as an album on a whole, beyond what Steve and John both said. And even though I'm not 100% on board with John's metaphor, I see both sides of the coin. Ultimately, for me, it's a nice, even 4.65. It's not... Nice, it's, nice, even 4.65. <laughs> um, you can sound like that six, later. 6521847. Yeah, okay. Um, it's even. It's precise. Um, the reason it's a, a, not, not a 4.75 and it's not a 4.6, it's somewhere in between those, is I feel like it's in the right direction for showing us exactly where funk... R&B, and even a little bit of pop, and jazz, and blues, like, there's so much in here that's going in the right direction for where that sound is headed, that I cannot fault it. However, there are moments on this record where I did find myself twiddling my thumbs a little bit, or wanting to get to the next piece. It's, it's more about the moments, but ultimately it ends on as strong a note as it starts, so I can't fault it too much. So we're all kind of in line, which with an album like this, it's hard not to be. Um, but yeah, for 4.65, I think that it's strong. And I think that D'Angelo definitely has the capacity to do incredible things, especially with social messaging, too, because he was on point with that. And I want, I want to hear more. I'm excited to go back and go through his discography, his I, other two I'm, albums. You know what? I'm even going to copy it again. I'm going to do that again. Because I feel like that's very justifiable, considering that even while you were talking, I was just like, oh, maybe this does deserve a 4.7. Maybe it does. Maybe it's almost there. It's like almost at that, that, that quarter marker to like the upper, upper echelon. Um, but I feel like it's just, just shy of it. So I think that's a really, really solid place uh, to put this, and that's why I think it'll, it'll be appropriate if, if, if my rating reflects yours in the in the wrap up. Four point six five, as ridiculous as it is, is is rather appropriate for this album. Um, if, if if only for the reasons that that you know this may not. Ha- I don't think this is my like my last comparison here. Again, since I brought up Future Island Singles, an album that was really really good on theme, really really good at exploring love, and it was clear about it, clear. And because it was so clear in the exploration of various different. Um, uh, reactions as one would find when looking back through the past. I feel like I've described this album so much, <laughs> it's getting really tiresome. Um, but because of that theme, because it was so tight, I feel like that that was the, 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 the winning aspect of it. that. That's why it got propelled, regardless that the music may have fallen short in many instances. Um, but because it was, you know, again, it, it, music is, is literature at the same time, and as, as we've proven uh, uh, repeatedly. Um, now this I don't think is as clear. I think it's clear in some instances, but I think it also could have been better stated in many of these instances from the lyrical standpoint. So it's not as clear. It's a little bit all over the place. I kind of get what he wants to go for, but if it was just a little tighter and maybe if it had a better thesis, as many uh, as many professors would would tell you, you know, obviously know your thesis, know your goal when you enter in with an album, uh, <laughs> with a paper. But obviously, and as an album would help. Otherwise, you have disparate reactions to said things um but the main reason why it is getting just the hair above uh um future island singles is of course texture that's it it's flat out i respect the exploration of new forms of sound and he's doing so by bringing some retro things to light but at the end of the day do you really recognize the retro in 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 uh 
side by side the wildly new things that this guy is doing? No. There you I, are. I shudder to think of what this album would have been if he did not rush it. Yeah, right? If he had not yeah, gotten it out months before. That, and that, they, that may very well be, like, assuming this was chronological, chronologically written as, as most pieces are not. But, you know, if you just think about the exact moment in which I started to detect some little shortcomings, uh, <laughs> that would be about exactly the moment in which uh, perhaps an album would say, like, okay, good enough. It's not <laughs> always a judgment, but I'll break the fourth wall a little bit. But when we talk two hours on an album because the intro was pretty light, you know it's a powerful record. I mean, we did that with For with good Macklemore. or bad, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I want to take a moment to touch on something Steve had brought up, since it is my place to talk about my feelings and emotion. Aw, um, back to our roles. Steve really mentioned That's something cute. that got me thinking, the idea of love as a role in a record, be it romantic love, be it a love of work, a love of the project, a, a love of family, how love is represented in music. There are so many ways, musically, lyrically, you know, uh, visually. And I think that, that I want to just take a moment to kind of list some of the, the artists and albums that I think really have done it really well. And the, f the first one I want to mention is something we actually reviewed on the show. Well, first I just want to retract and clarify or qualify your, your uh, statement. Since, since I brought it up earlier, and obviously we're talking about love and, and, and various different ways it's implemented, and obviously I brought up uh, Future Island singles. But before I get into examples, one way in which I want to quantify this is, is by... Um, is by explaining that obviously you can approach love in, not only in different forms but also toward different ends, toward different causes, and it it comes from the same root, and that root is is mere passion. The only reason you would engage in music is if you have a passion for the, for the art form, for the medium, and it will probably stem from your passions or reflect your passions for other things. So when you start getting into the reason, all the things that you that you love, just about the world around you in, in this short time that we're here on Earth, then you, you, it does come down to what you love in the end. And, and it doesn't always have to be a pure romantic kind. Obviously, it could be love of, love of country, love of um, nas nationality, love of lineage, love of, um, love of art form itself. If you want to take it really meta, well, just your love of music, in which case that's why I like funk so much, is because in many cases it is just love of the medium. It is a, a raw expression of, of having fun with the variety of things music can do without necessarily entering into specific themes. So that's my precursor. Two things I want to bring up right off the bat. One song that I feel like on a meta level really has best expressed my love of music. And it's a song that I've mentioned from an album I've mentioned quite a few times and came up quite a few times in our um, year-end wrap-up. Um, David Alburn's album, um, Everyday Robots. He has a song episode, called... Episode 109. Uh, Lonely, press, press Play. What I love about that song is this idea that a love of music is so important to you that no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how alone you and isolated you feel, just press play. And on the most simplistic level, that love of music is exactly how I feel and digest and interpret and understand and live with music. It's just, it's the end all be all, no matter what I have, I will always be able to press play. And I loved that. Second example is one of the few albums where we rated, I mean, we, we, we don't always agree. And there is always 
Um, we we don't like always agreeing. Right, but there are, are moments where we f- we disagree, but in an expected way. And this next artist is where it happened that I can last recall. Um, and I'm, of course, talking about Justin Furstenfield and Blue October and their album Sway, where musically and structurally you both felt it was fairly average or a little bit above average whereas for me I rated it much higher because emotionally Justin Furstenfeld sings more emotionally and constructs his records more emotionally especially when dealing with love as a father love as a lover love as a family member and a love of music on another level and it was like a quite a bit higher for me because of that conveyance and why I feel like he as an artist and Blue October as a band is worth bringing up because they do that on every record. It doesn't always work and sometimes it it does get garbled too much but in that case at least with Sway I really did connect to it and I felt like it was the right direction. Sometimes... So you love love. I do love love. <laughs> uh, ultimately I love music and I love love. Love is... I just found the title for this uh, segment. Love is a hard thing to tackle in unique ways. Because, frankly, humanity's been dealing with since we had the ability to distinguish ourselves from whatever evolutionary piece we were in. The, the very fact that we were able to actually come up with the idea of, I enjoy this person's company, we started coming up with the idea of love. So, we've done it all, we've seen it all. It's hard to do. But sometimes you run across, like, little things that, frankly, you never kind of approached it that same way before. And one of my favorite love songs, not talking album, but one of my favorite love songs of all time will always be Something. Hmm. I love that song. George Harrison, oh my God. He wrote some of the most emotional songs the Beatles ever put out. I am putting that out there. Yeah. Trying to find me. Yeah, I don't care, man. Uh, before Before you even get into it, I'm just going to interrupt you with uh, one comment. The, the, the song Something captures the ineffability of love, which is exactly what we were talking about, um, and how difficult it is to to uh, approach. Anyway, I'm not going to steal your thunder. You go ahead with that. I know. Oh, that's gee, what you, I know. Thanks. That, thanks for as taking if anybody the exact really words needed, out of my mouth. Needed to break down that, you know. But it's it's hard track. to come across songs like that, to come across albums like that. It's the, the those are like once in a lifetime type of experiences for a band, for a musician, and. It's, it's a shame it's so hard to articulate an emotion like love in such a unique manner. Because I start looking at like some of my favorite albums growing up when I wanted to be happy love or depressing love or whatever. When I was in my real emo phase and I was really into um, Dashboard Confessional, Swiss Army Romance. When I was that kid back in 2000, 2001. Sometimes you're still that kid. Yeah, but sometimes I kind of need to still be that kid. I I need to be that kind of... But I look back on it, and while it's not a bad album, because it's it still really does capture emo, which, well, it's emo. It's supposed to be love and lust and loss and heartbreak and all that sort of stuff. It's kind of samey after a while. When I compare these ideas together, it's a shame. But at the same time, it's great that we do have those little lights. We have that one song or that one album where we can say that that was a nice, unique expression of love. 
those are those tracks that yeah will be touted for the ages that you know 50 years later people are still bringing up something because of how how just you know the light in the wilderness they are how unique they are in encapsulating the idea well as long as we're going in the meta direction here and i i know i got this ball rolling uh not just with the topic but then again by um by bringing up the fact that obviously, as I said before, in, 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 in funk music very often it's just the love of music itself. Well, okay, that's rather rather meta if you're just looking at, at, at music and then celebrating the art form in the art form itself. Let's take that step further. What about celebrating the concepts behind the reasons why you love the art form? Which really removes you from, from the concept itself. But what is the creative essence of music that really attracts people. This is something that, that is almost impossible to put into words, but I've only found it in a small poetic stanza found in one of my favorite mis- composers, or at least if not of my, if not my favorite composer, then one of my favorite composers who wrote one of my favorite pieces, and that is Scriabin's Piano Sonata Number no. 5. I brought it up a couple of times in the podcast, but I don't get the chance very often because it's if, if if we ever got the chance to um to review this in the future, it, w- it would probably break our brains. <sighs> the original text is in Russian. It was then translated to French. I will go to the English translation. I call you to life, O mysterious forces, drowned in the obscure depths of the creative spirit, timid shadows of life. To you, I bring audacity. How vague can you get? <laughs> but that's just the thing. When he wrote this piece, he knew he was grappling with something that he didn't know. He didn't know what he was dealing with. He was he was one of those uh, musicians that really like bought into the mysticism uh, concept, and that in being synesthetic as he was, because he could see sounds, he could he could interpret all the all the twelve tones of of the system um, of the twelve tone system as as individual colors themselves. So to him, he just saw this color wheel whenever he played piano, and he felt like he was painting something impressionistic as he went forward and in, in many ways it's it's the truest what i find to be the truest root form of impressionism than any of the other uh artists and composers to which the the term impressionism was perhaps uh arbitrarily applied like to debussy and like to Ravel, who in fact hated the term from the get-go and yet that's just how we're going to remember them as well they're impressionist composers now just because some guy thought that it was appropriate for their type of music but in which this honestly sums it up i think i think better than anything if you don't know exactly what you're getting at but you feel like you're bringing something beautiful to life then beauty itself mysterious forces calling them to life and bringing them audacity something that will that will that will just smack humanity in the face and and wake you up and make you realize you're alive and thrill you for reasons you don't even realize well i think uh, concluding this lovely discussion no you can't conclude what no no you cannot conclude what he just said i'm still reeling off of the the meta we just went to no i'm gonna pull it in and 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 wrap it up (laughs) Now he's gonna be a, he's gonna be a dick. Well, you know, you spend ninety percent of the time being a dick on this podcast. It's my turn. Yeah, it's fair. it's okay. Yeah, no, give him fair. give him his moment, Matt. Um, be a dick. Seriously though, um, I think that essentially, ultimately, what that's saying is, if we ever fully understand love, I don't think it'll be love anymore. The fact that we can't really 
We can't really truly 100% understand it. And that's why it's exciting. When you're in love with someone in the romantic sense, but you're, it becomes predictable, it, it's not really that kind of love anymore. But if every day you don't know what's coming next, I mean, that, that unpredictability is what makes love such a strong emotion. Which in the end brings to, uh, brings to light one of the most interesting elements that you, you perhaps indirectly brought up during the podcast, which is that um, during the, the analysis, which is that once life gets stagnant, or rather once life gets stable, becomes boring yeah and that's exactly what what anyone would find in 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 in, uh in the case of any romantic love if we're going to be on the nose about it is that obviously you know keeping it interesting is important um i think this is a great place for us to move into wrapping up this week's episode um so i believe that'll be steve's job to take us there because i made a joke several weeks ago about how we didn't have to have to do our running gag of spam ever again if we kept getting fan mail. Well, we are. Um, so we, we had a great response from a fan who's already written us. We had a brand new um, recommendation, which is why we're doing the album we did today. But now even something more humbling, unbelievable, and honestly left me flabbergasted happened just a few days ago. It, it was frankly just cool. It was just cool. So recently, the uh, Facebook page for Island Records, uh, Idol Records, I'm sorry, Idol Records, started following us, liked our page as a page to display, and then shared our review of the Dar- of Daryl's album on their page. Well, I was just honored that that happened, but then I did a little digging and found out why. Because... Idol Records is the record label of Daryl. And that then, originally released Ohio, the album you reviewed back in episode 114, uh, in 2004. And then, days later, the drummer for Daryl commented on our review of that album. And Steve will tell us his name and what he said. Well, his name is Michael Lamb. And uh, just to preface this, uh, considering this is the, the third, our third episode of the year in which we've actually had this unbelievable streak of, uh, of, saying, of reciting fan mail in, in place of our usual segment, which is spam mail. A little running gag we've had. Listen back. You'll, you'll be entertained, I'm sure. But, um, but each of these instances, uh, just, to, just to stroke the ego that was the band Daryl long ago, have been concerning Daryl. Uh, the two fans that we read, both Jose and Mark, had massive segments where they they discussed Daryl. And this may, of course, be connected. We don't know uh, whether this is like a, a t- attached um, to uh, as as fans of, of of the band just tangentially, or or perhaps you know friends of Idol Records. We don't know. But either way, <laughs> Daryl is getting quite a spot on Crash Chords just in terms of conversation that has gone well and beyond our our actual episode one fourteen. Anyway, Michael Lamb had this to say, and he commented directly under the post itself. Hi guys, I play drums for this band. I just finished the episode, and I want to tell you how insane you guys are for spending two hours of your life dissecting this album, plus the week you spent listening to it. You spent more time with this album than everyone in my family combined. I'm so glad the world has psychos like yourself that still have this kind of passion for music. I'll give you a little backstory on the album. This was a concept album based on Dylan's lead singer-songwriter, Dylan's upbringing in parts of Ohio, around his high school years, especially the last track that was mostly based on us seeing the Columbia Shuttle disaster unfold on TV, which I found particularly interesting. I think we were in a shitty diner gas station somewhere on tour. The song 
rooms uh, 31 and 30 is about him setting a, a fire in his school with some other kids and him taking all the blame for it, I think. Shit, it's been a long time. We were in our mid-twenties when we recorded it. The album was our fifth and last release. We broke up in 2006 or 2007. The singer and one of the guitar players has a new thing called These Machines Are Winning, which we actually were informed uh, about by, by Mark. Um, uh, actually, and, and also Jose. And they have one album out, about to release another. Another guitar player has a band called West Windows. It's good stuff. Myself and the bass player have had a couple of bands, Blood on the Moors and Lay Americans. If you want any of this stuff, I'll be glad to send it your way. It's the least I can do. Anyway, thanks for taking the time to break it down. It was amazing how much you got out of the tracks, with only having the tunes, not knowing us, not ever having a physical copy of the album. Truly amazing. Thanks. Um, that's a bit of an ego stroke, and I'm trying to, I, I try not to be... Look, we do this every week mostly because we just want to and because we're psychos, but... Yeah, that, that was that was the most um, of, all, of all these compliments. I particularly enjoyed that one. But I think the I thing that's cycle. really cool about that is that he got exactly what we were trying to do just from listening to what we do, and that's why we do it. And so it was pretty <laughs> cool to have this happen on the site, and can only look forward to more of it. Obviously, it'll be probably less. Oh my God, when it happens more frequently. But for now, I'm gonna fucking take it. One can only hope we're we're. we're uh... Our success is going to be derived by being recognized for doing what we do as we do it. Yeah, as I said. If, 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 yeah. Except, except when when the spine goes and comments on my steam power draft, and it's like, well, hello there, imaginators, and I would just lose my shit. We'll get there. Um, as far <laughs> it's still third, fourth instance uh, in which a a, um, a band has actually reached out to us personally. So it's it's not something we're new to. But as I as I commented to him in. In, in the uh, comment, board lord, uh, comment board itself, uh, it, the, yeah, the occasions for doing so are few and far between. Um, wrapping up, though, this episode, I want to talk a little bit about what we're doing next week. We're having our January guest on, as I had hinted and mentioned many times because we're all really excited. Kita St. Cyr is returning to the podcast. She's been stoked to do it. She had a blast when she was here two years ago, which is terrifying to say aloud. Episode 45. Um, and she is bringing us some K-pop, um, a band called 2NE1, the number two, the letters N-E and the number one, and their album Crush, which actually had some acclaim here in the States, and so she's bringing that next week. We're excited to have her back. Um, it's always a blast to have friends of mine from the burlesque world because they use music in such a unique way to talk about it. Although I think this is just coming from being a straight-up music fan of this band. And considering last time it was over two years ago that I said I wanted to bring J-pop on, this is pretty close. And thank you, Kita. I'll be thank you again next week. So uh, on the ballpark. <laughs> we're close. So thanks again for listening, guys. Um, we're excited to have Kita on next week. So until then, music is life. And, and life, life is, is good. good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one -on -one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going. Because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.